Chair, staff is ready when you are. Oh, that's loose and cute. Community Police Review Commission. The meeting is now called to order. Will the clerk please call the roll to establish quorum? Thank you, Chair. Commissioner Sample? Present. Commissioner J. Johnson is absent. Commissioner Z. Johnson? Here. Commissioner Bliss? Yes. Commissioner Carter Martinez is absent. No, she's, I see her walking on the dais. Uh, uh, Carter, Mart oh. Carter Martinez. Thank you. Uh, Commissioner Buenrostro? Present. Commissioner Griggs? Commissioner Carter is present. Uh, Commissioner Marion is absent. Commissioner Salazar. And Chair Castillo-Krings. Here. Thank you, we have quorum. Great, I would like to remind members of the public and chambers that it would, if you wish to speak on an agenda item, please turn in a speaker slip when the item begins. For members of the public, oh, and I guess we don't have that anymore. We don't have, yes. Great. And then to provide a greater community participation in our commission's work, we will allow for more time for members of the public to give comments and we'll ask the clerk to keep the queue open until the last speaker has conducted their comments. For matters not on the agenda, the public will have five minutes to speak. For matters listed on the agenda, the public will have three minutes to speak. We are also, yeah, and that's, Great, now let's proceed with today's agenda. Let's go ahead and rise for the land acknowledgement. So in honor of Sacramento's indigenous people and tribal lands, to the original people of this land, the Nisan people, to the Southern Maidu, uh, the Valley and Plains Miwok, the Patwin Wintun, uh, peoples and for the peoples of the Wilton Rancheria, Sacramento's only federally recognized tribe. May we acknowledge and honor the native people who came before us and still walk beside us um, on these ancestral lands by choosing to gather together today in the active practice of an acknowledgement and appreciation for Sacramento's indigenous people's histories, contributions, and lives. Thank you. Please remain standing for the Pledge of Allegiance. I pledge of allegiance to the flag of the United States of America and to the republic for which it stands, one nation, under God, indivisible, with liberty and justice for all. Thank you. Okay, for off agenda. Um, our first business today is public comments. And I'm sorry, this is a little out of order. Um, our first item is consent. Calendar, uh, we are looking at the approval of the Sacramento Community Police Review Commission meeting minutes. So move approval. Do I have a second? Second. Great. Mr. Clerk, could you please call the roll? Thank you, Chair. Commissioner Sample? Yes. Commissioner J. Johnson is absent. Commissioner Z. Johnson? Yes. Commissioner Bliss? Yes. 
Commissioner Carter Martinez is absent. Commissioner Buenrostro? Yes. Commissioner Griggs? Yes. Commissioner Carter? Yes. Commissioner Marion is absent. Commissioner Zalazar? Chair Castillo and Chair Castillo Krings. Yes. Thank you. The motion passes. Yeah, I see. Uh, our next order of business is our first item on our discussion calendar. And I actually would, given that we have some presenters here, would like to kind of switch the orders up and move our num discussion item number to our follow-up log to the end of the agenda. Commissioner Bliss. Uh, thank you, Chair. I. Uh, uh, support that uh, moving that agenda item uh, to the bottom of the list for presenters. Um, I also am aware that there's um, a few folks here for off agenda comment. I think that would be, I was hoping that we might be able to uh, move off agenda I, uh, up a little bit to uh, hear from them as well. If everyone's okay with that in the commission, great. Yes, let's go ahead and do that. Thank you, Commissioner. So we're moving off to off agenda. So any items not on the agenda today, if there are members of the public wishing to speak, now is the time. I'd like to remind folks to please turn in a speaker slip. They can be found um, up front here on the table or in the back there um, next to the, uh, the window there. Um, I have one speaker thus far uh, for matters not on the agenda, uh, Truth. Hi, good evening, commissioners. So, I can begin? Yes. So on September 29th, uh, Sacramento Police Department sergeants stated that they are very limited in certain knowledge pertaining to their employer and American history in general. So today, uh, I want to accomplish both by giving a little history of policing. Policing came from a job called slave catchers. This was a repeatable position elected by local townspeople. A slave catcher is a person employed to track down and return escaped slaves to their enslavers or their respective plantations. The first slave catchers in America was active in European colonies in the Western Indies and then transferred onto the southern plantations. Even though California was not a, considered a slave state, it did practice slave practices. After the establishment of the United States in 1789, the activities of slave catchers from the American South became the center major controversy. And the slave patrols even had an oath. These were, again, reputable people from their neighborhood that was elected to an oath of office to return descendants of slaves to their plantations. So the slave patrols policing stated that I do solemnly swear, and they put their name, that I will as a searcher for guns, swords, and other weapons among the slaves in my district 
faithfully and as privately as I can discharge the trust reposed to me as the law directs in the best of my power, so help me God. This is a slave patrol's oath, North Carolina, 1828. Moving forward, the fugitive slave trade actually allowed this to be legal. And for my family history, so you know, uh, my family came from the Good Ship Desire. My family's name is Desire. We came here in 1636, William Pierce as the ship master. So since 1636, we have built, sweat, and, and, and created this country. Now on September 29th, as I was banking in downtown Sacramento, uh, McPhail decided to exercise his right as a slave catcher. Now, the reason why I re-went to that history because McPhail himself, as well as his colleagues, state they don't know the history of policing. So on record, I'm letting you know where it came from and why his behavior is deplorable. So as recognizing Mr. Uh, Reed, one of the business owners that had a, filed a complaint on record to Catherine Lester a couple of weeks before, McPhail detained the person that was with Reed upon exiting a bank, then asked if I had the right to utilize that bank. No, you can't make this up, ladies and gentlemen. And so after he... Um, embarrassed in front of the public. You had passerbys that were perplexed as to why this officer was detaining me to begin with. Upon the interaction, I gave my identification and my banking card, said, this is who I am, why are you stopping me? Then he saw Mr. Reed and said, oh, tell Mr. Reed to watch out. After Mr. Reed had left, he became a little more aggressive with his... Um, partner that was with him. At the end of that transaction, he basically was dismissive. McPhail was saying that, well, I could detain you because this is the right that I have and blah, blah, blah. And when I was asking him just basic policing questions, not only was he dismissive, but he was sarcastic, which made it even more deplorable. I saw people in the window, white people, black people, Asian people. They were standing there so appalled that they even cursed out McPhail after the interaction. I had a, a meeting in Oakland that day. That's what I wanted to get into. Come to find out a couple of days later, looking for my ID for something else, I realized my ID wasn't even with me anymore. So McPhail confiscated my ID as a good slave catcher would. What I don't appreciate in the history of Irish-Scottish policing, how they feel about blacks. You don't have to like us, but you have to respect us. We're not asking for reparations. You can still study it all you want. We don't have to own anything, but when it comes to black businesses, constituents that pay taxes, we deserve the right to be treated like human beings. So I need McPhail to return my ID or he'll be under the jail. I'm not one to play with. I'm running for lieutenant governor. You don't have to say that state. Eleni doesn't mind in 2026 because I'm tired being born and raised in California that I still don't have the right to be treated Thank as a human being in 2023. Thank you so much for your time. Chair, I have no more speaker slips uh, for matters not on the agenda. And thank you so much for coming here tonight and letting us know what's going on. 
Moving on to our discussion item, we, our next discussion item that we have is number three, which is the Office of Public Safety Accountability Audits of the Sacramento Police Department, misconduct complaint cases, improper search and seizure. Is there a presentation? Mr. Inspector General, thank you so much for making the time and welcome. Thank you. Um, do I just use this to click? All right. Good evening, uh, police commissioners. My name is Dwight White. I am the Inspector General for the City of Sacramento. I work within the Office of Public Safety and Accountability. Um, I was hired two years ago by the director of um, OPSA, Office of Public Safety and Accountability, Dr. Leticia Watson, and the mayor, uh, Daryl Steinberg. My job for the past two and a half years um, has been to independently and fairly investigate um, officer-involved shootings, uh, as well as cases that involve serious bodily injury and in-custody deaths. Uh, another big part of my job is to monitor and review completed cases of police misconduct um, where Sacramento citizens complain uh, of the conduct of Sacramento police officers. Um, I review these cases uh, to make sure that the allegations of misconduct were not just swept under the rug, that an actual investigation took place, that the right evidence was collected, the right people were interviewed, and the right conclusion or disposition was reached. Um, I'll talk about this more later, but um, right now there are four dispositions that a misconduct complaint can have. Uh, the first one is sustained, which means that the allegations or the evidence proves that the allegation occurred as it was alleged. Uh, the second one is not sustained, which basically means um, there is insufficient evidence to prove or disprove the allegation. Uh, the third one would be exonerated, which means um, the allegation happened as it was alleged, but um, the officer was justified in some reason uh, in doing so. And then the last one is unfounded, which, unfounded excuse me, which basically means that the evidence proves that the allegation of misconduct did not occur. Um, So uh, this slide is just basically telling you about the office, uh, what we were designed to do to monitor uh, the police and fire. Um, and then this slide tells you how we go about doing that. Uh, one of the avenues or tools that we use is auditing. Um, and we basically audit to identify patterns and practices um, that we identified through the case reviews, through the you know, the weekly case reviews of reviewing the misconduct complaints to identify, like I said, patterns of practice that um, we find interesting or uh, we think could be um, the source of a bigger issue. Uh, in doing, so like I said, I was here for two and a half years um, and in reviewing all of the, not all, but reviewing as many as I can, the, the case reviews, um, I noticed an initial uh, pattern of improper search and seizure complaints were, be, be, were getting sustained at a higher rate than any other complaints that uh, I looked at within that time period. Um, improper search and seizure is a violation of the Fourth Amendment. The Fourth Amendment talks about um, <laughs> uh, unreasonable search and seizures by the government. Um, so. 
basically, we took upon the audit to determine whether it was an anomaly, um, whether Sacramento Police Department had like a real issue with search and seizure. Um, what was what was going on? Why was search and seizure being um, complained upon uh, more than any other uh, complaint? Um, here is the audit overview. Oh man, I thought they would be a thing. I have terrible eyesight. I'm so sorry. Hold on. I think I have my glasses. I do. All right. Nice. All right. Um, yeah, like I said before, the audit was basically to ascertain whether there was a systematic problem or whether there were isolated incidents in reference to um, SPD's um, complaints on improper searches and seizures. For the audit, I went back um, two years from June 2021 to June, excuse me, June 1st, 2020 through June 30th, 2023. I looked at 109 completed misconduct uh, complaint cases, all search and seizure. Um, during that, I reviewed, it was 109 cases, completed cases, but in those completed cases, I reviewed hundreds, thousands of hours of body-worn camera, um, hundreds of police reports, of um, investigative reports, of uh, policies and procedures. Um, really, I mean, it was a pretty thorough examination. Um, Dispatch reports, transcribed interviews, witness statements, investigative summaries, uh, investigatory records. <laughs> um, yeah. Um, so out of that, I started to see certain patterns. Um, this first chart talks about um, this is what SBD identified. Uh, in their uh, review of these 109 cases. So 86, they unfounded, and like I said before, unfounded basically means that they believe that evidence, um, there's evidence that no issue, no Fourth Amendment, no improper search and seizure occurred. They sustained 17, which they uh, believe that in 17 cases, there was a search and seizure issue. They exonerated four, which they say four cases, uh, they were justified in their search and seizure complaint. And then they not sustained two, which basically means, again, that they, um, it was just insufficient evidence to prove or disprove the allegations of, of uh, improper search and seizure. Um, this is a breakdown from what uh, the types of violations that we identified, OPSA, and then what they identified as violations. Um, we are in the blue and they are in the orange. Uh, the reason the number, the total number, may be a little um, smaller, even though it was 109 cases, basically I looked at what, it, what was the main uh, issue. So one case could have a probation search issue or a unlawful detention issue or a welfare check issue. However, I just took what was the issue predominantly in the case. What, it, what was the citizen complaining about? What was their predominant issue? And you can see, um, it looks like both us and uh, SBD agreed that the unlawful pat-down searches were, um, were a big cause. Um, like I said before, these were the SPD sustained violations. Um, this is what they believe. Um, so I guess I'll start with the statistical findings of the report. 
basically I wanted to answer certain questions um, during the report. Um, the first questions I kind of wanted to at, uh, answer was who was complaining. Um, so from this one, in those two years for improper search and seizure, you can see that people uh, in the age bracket of 19 to 30 made the most complaints, uh, followed by 31 and, uh, and 40, and then it, decrease, it decreases from there. Um, in the second graph, you see male versus female, how many males to how many females complained about improper search and seizures within those two years, 70% to about 30%. Um, the next question I want to ask, like who? Like what was the, the racial makeup of the people complaining? About 70 complaints were um, black and African American, followed by um, Hispanic, Latino, uh, Middle Eastern and white Caucasian, follows. Um, the next, I want to know where, like where the complaints coming from the, the most. Uh, Police District 2 uh, had the most of, of any. Um, I believe that's the Del Paso area, followed by um, 6 and 5. I believe that is um, Oak Park area. Uh, this graph just kind of talks about, again, where, the, where, where are the complaints coming from the most? Um, there are three uh, police facilities. So the North Command, again, I think that Del Paso area, North Command has the most complaints of, of the three police district. The unincorporated areas are, uh, there are some areas in Sacramento that are, are deemed unincorporated. And I guess that's more so with the Sac County, but in those cases, I believe Sacramento police officers um, they responded to the scene. All right, um, so the audit findings and recommendations. I'm sorry, it's like we're missing something. Oh. Um, the first finding, there are about 10 findings in the report. The first finding was, um, Stops based on minor traffic infractions, such as improper window tint with no apparent intention to enforce the vehicle code or ticket the driver amounted to pretextual stops. Um, this is something that I saw for quite a few of the um, complaints that I, I looked at. And I want to talk about this graph, actually. So in this graph, um, I wanted to know what people were complaining about the most in those two years. And if you look, um, people complained of traffic-related issues more than anything else, more than investigative detentions, um, more than welfare checks, uh, traffic-related stops more than anything else. It really just shoots out at you. Uh, and that kind of makes sense because I feel like with most people, their, their, their interaction with police are usually going to be like a traffic-related thing. Um, but then I wanted to know like what happens, like what happens during these traffic-related stops. So I drilled down even more and I looked at um, what people were getting stopped at and then what they complained. Um, so they all complained over improper search and seizure, but why were they stopped initially? And um, you see that tenant windows, um, people complain the most out of that one, more than anything, more than speeding, more than red light. Um, people complained over uh, the tenant window stops. 
And then, so I wanted to see what happens during these tenant window stops. Why are people complaining so much when they're stopped for these tenant windows? Like what's, what's going on during these stops? And then that's when I came to this graph. Um, so I looked at all 19 stops and I wanted to know like what happened, what, what went on during these stops. And um, I wanted to know if the car was searched, were guns found, were drugs found, was there arrests, was there a citation, the duration of the stops, the, the race, the sex, the age, the beat. And in most of the stops, um, a search occurred. Um, in some of the stops, a gun was found. Um, and that says drugs, but really it should say marijuana. Most of the stops, there was some marijuana that was found. I shouldn't say most, but I think in five, there was some marijuana found. Um, in three of the stops, there was an arrest. Um, a citation some of the time. And then we look at the race, like the, the people who complained in the past two years of improper window tents and their rights being violated during these stops were um, all black and Latino, um, all fit the age bracket of the, the previous graph. And then the majority in, uh, it says two, and that corresponds with the beat location, um, which corresponds, I can tell you, uh, the two co corresponds to uh, Del Paso. Um, so what happens during these stops? Uh, for the most part, the officer will stop somebody for an improper window tent, and then when they get to the car, they'll uh, either say that they see loose marijuana or they can smell marijuana. They'll usually order the person out of the car. Um, they'll conduct a search uh, to find contraband of some sort. Um, and. Yeah, this happens for, for most um, of these uh, stops. Give me one second. So in California, even though people can still possess cannabis, uh, marijuana, uh, under the law, there are still statutory rules that citizens have to follow. For instance, you can only have like an ounce of marijuana on you. Um, you cannot smoke and drive. Um, if the police see loose strands of weed in the car, um, they can treat it, or they used to be able to treat it like a open container, and they can order citizens out of the car, and they could um, search the vehicle. Um, I think the, the major issue here, though, is for the past two years, the only people who complained were black and Latino people. Um, and the two cases where a gun was re recovered. The guns did not have serial numbers on them, so these are the types of guns that we want officers to get off the street. Um, however, the, the pretext of stopping people for improper window, um, it, I brought it up to the city council. It, it was an issue for me because the officers never test the window to see if it's improper or not. Um, and they never really questioned the driver about the window tents um, in reviewing the body-worn cameras of all of these cases. The questions were usually about if the driver, um, if the driver had ever been arrested before, if they were under probation, where were they going. Um, it was never really an investigation to the window tent, um, which kind of lends more credence to the window tent just being a, a, a pretext or a ruse to, to stop the person um, to fish for looking for guns and drugs. Um, let's see, I have more notes here. 
Again, um, it's not necessarily unconstitutional to stop people for window tents. Um, however, when you talk about building relationships with the community, um, these type of stops uh, don't really help and they kind of, to me, reinforce negative stereotypes of police officers. Um, in some cases, police officers cited the driver for improper window tent, but in watching the body-worn cameras, um, it's clear that the stops were a pretext. Um, oh yeah, and this audit, it has limitations. It was only, we only conducted the audit on people who complained. We didn't look at um, every single person who was stopped for improper window tent. We, we don't have the resources of the office. It was just me like looking at all this stuff. Um, so yeah, so uh, the first finding going back to, um, so from all of that, that's where I get this, this finding. Um, stops based on minor traffic infractions such as improper window tent with no apparent intention to enforce the vehicle code or ticket the driver amounts of pretextual stops. The recommendation was to eliminate the practice of pretextual stops or set clear restrictions on conducting them. Um, the second recommendation was to develop a clear policy for conducting traffic stops. Right now, there is no policy for conducting any type of traffic stops um, or pretextual stops. Um, there is a Senate Bill 50, which is um, probably about to become a law that does um, restrict uh, pretextual stops um, in the state of California. It hasn't been passed yet. But the, the recommendation was to kind of eliminate these pretextual stops because um, they have a disproportionate impact on uh, minorities, um, as this graph shows. Again, this is a small sample size. Um, and they don't really build relationships. Like most of the complaints were from you know, tenant windows, uh, more for speeding, more for red light, um, <laughs> more of sleeping in parked car. Um, but yeah. Finding two, I think this is kind of the overall uh, policy recommendation. Uh, this talks about, um, as of right now, SPD does not have a current standalone policy regarding the Fourth Amendment that includes search and seizure. Um, I think that's a, a major oversight since, um, you know, the Fourth Amendment is, is impacted in some way anytime a police officer, you know, talks to a citizen. So to not have a policy that talks about improper search and seizure or talks about the Fourth Amendment, I think is a major oversight. Um, the recommendation is to draft a clear standalone policy um, for search and seizure. Um, they do, SPD does have a search and seizure manual. This manual is from 2007. Um, it hasn't been revised or updated since 2007. And there have been several, um, several Supreme Court decisions in California and um, federally that, you know, expand or restrict what officers can do uh, um, based off of the Fourth Amendment. Um, so one of the, uh, so that, that's where this one comes, update the search and seizure manual from 2007. Um, this is another big thing that I saw in the 109 cases, this um, automatic pat downs of citizens in direct conflict of um, Terry v. Ohio, 1968 decision. Um, and a lot of, uh, for these cases, um, police officers would stop people and then they would kind of pat them down as a matter of course, especially during traffic stops. Um, and they would pat them down for um, officer safety reasons, which 
I kind of understand, but the, the law in Terry v. Ohio says that in order to pat someone down, you have to believe that the person is armed uh, and dangerous, armed or dangerous. And, um, you know, officer safety isn't a valid reason for, for, for patting someone down. You have to be able to articulate. And in the, the police reports don't really articulate why they patted someone down. Um, sometimes the statements just say, um, I patted the person down, but doesn't articulate the reason of why you patted the person down. Um, so the, the first recommendation require officers to articulate why a citizen was stopped and why a pat down of a person was warranted in their reports. Um, draft clear policy on pat downs, investigatory stops, investigative detentions. I think there was some issues over officers not really knowing the difference between an investigatory stop and a consensual stop. Um, and it, yeah, ensure continuous training to new recruits and police officers on investigatory stops, pat downs, reasonable suspicion, Fourth Amendment fundamentals. Um, yeah, I, this is a, hu a huge one. Uh, a lot of people complained over these pat downs, and in some, I, I, you know, I, we agreed with. Um, warrantless entry into citizens' homes and conducting um, searches without sufficient uh, legal authority. This came into um, effect for the, um, I believe, uh, probation searches. Hold on one second. Sorry about this. I don't want to confuse this one and another one. Um, this one, I believe, comes about uh, where police officers conducting welfare checks. Um, right now, or the, some of the cases that I saw, um, the police officers will get to a scene and, you know, nothing would, they, they'd go for a welfare check, so somebody would call the police and say, hey, um, I haven't talked to my uncle in a while, can you guys go do a welfare check to make sure he's okay? The officers would go to the house and, you know, Uncle Sal wouldn't come to the door or something like that. And so um, in some cases, the officers would break down the door and try to look for Uncle Sal. They'll search the place looking for Uncle Sal. Or um, in some cases, they would, you know, damage the person's property trying to look for the person, which, you know, You can't really do that. Um, there are several uh, Supreme Court cases that kind of talk about having the exigency uh, when you do perform a welfare check. Uh, there must be some type of exigent circumstances. There must be some type of um, emergency. So if you believe that Uncle Sal has been injured or something, or you have reasonable belief that um, he's injured or he's uh, in peril, then yeah, you can do it. But you know, you getting to the scene and not hearing anything doesn't necessarily give you the right to uh, break down a door. Another. Uh, instance where um, I saw this was in the um, probation searches where an officer would be conducting um, a probation search, but they would violate the rights of people who weren't on probation. So if uh, they're searching, so if you're on probation, police officers can pretty much search you whenever they can come into your house and they could search your, your, your house. But if the person is staying with other people, the police can only search the person who's on probation, their room, 
and they can search the, um, the common areas of the house. Uh, where sometimes this would come up is where police officers would search people's rooms who were not on probation at all. Um, they just happened to share uh, the living space with the person who was on probation. So uh, the recommendation was to draft policy conducting welfare check that encompasses warrantless entry into citizens' homes. Um, yeah. Uh, this finding came about, so, um, at, you know, doing this for two years, we've had substantial back and forth with the police department on certain cases. Um, I don't want to get into it all here, but there's been a lot of back and forth for, for certain cases where, you know, we identified some pretty clear Fourth Amendment issues and for whatever reason, they didn't think they were Fourth Amendment issues. Um, and in one of these cases, it, it cost the city. Uh, in one case, uh, a guy was arrested for, um, for really lack of probable cause. The, the officer arrested this guy for um, possession because he thought a gun that he found belonged to this guy. And on his body-worn camera, he says uh, things like, I thought it was, um, I can't really tell you who it was. I think it's this guy. Um, I, I thought it was this guy pointing to another completely different person. Um, that person sued the city uh, and, and won a pretty big judgment against the city. Um, so the, the recommendation there was that um, all personnel to receive supplemental search and seizure training from the Sacramento District Attorney's Office and um, all misconduct complaint cases investigated by IAD or supervising personnel within the assigned divisions. Um, how it works before this recommendation went into effect, for certain cases, the um, captain of that district would investigate his officers or his or her officers. Um, and sometimes that wasn't great because that captain, let's just say, had other you know, stuff on, on their plate and a lot of things would fall through. A lot of these Fourth Amendment issues that we would see would be because um, the captain didn't read something or didn't understand some nuance of, of the law. So uh, we thought it'd be better if IAD, the Internal Affairs Division, would investigate all of the misconduct complaint cases and kind of take it away from uh, having the captains uh, review the misconduct uh, complaint cases. Audit summary. Oh man, this is a, a limited version of, <laughs> sorry, I didn't, I didn't make this PowerPoint. Um, clearly. Um, but in summary, uh, I think the, the audit did have some limitations. Uh, a big part of the limitations was limited in, in scope. Um, like I said, it was just me uh, reviewing all of these um, reports and body-worn cameras and cases, um, the office capacity. Um, we only went back two years. Um, if we really wanted to, um, to ascertain whether it was a, a true issue, then I think we should have uh, looked at more cases, gone back maybe five years or 10 years. Um, uh, we were dependent on people who complained only. Um, so I think uh, what we really should have done is maybe looked at the RIPA data for the, the last like four or five years and then um, got those complaints that the person did complain uh, to, to see that information. 
Um, and a big part, it excludes incidents that just weren't reported by community members because they lost faith in the system or um, they have their own um, skewed views of, of policing in America. Audit update. Um, like I said before, I did this initial presentation with Letitia, the director of OPSA, in June uh, 20, 2023. Um, that was a long presentation. Uh, the the, the follow-up, basically um, from that presentation, the police, excuse me, the city council ordered the police department to um, adhere or take um, all of our, our recommendations. Um, in September 12, 2023, SPD presented uh, a timeline of when they were gonna make these recommendations, um, when they were gonna send the recommendations to the uh, city attorney's office and um, an approximate time of when they can implement a lot of the recommendations. From my um, talks and discussions with SPD, they want to implement all of the recommendations I made uh, in the audit. Um, another update, we did get staffing um, approved, so I'll be getting help. Um, OPSA will be getting help. Uh, city Attorney's Office will be getting new people and SPD will be getting people as well. Um, audit implement, implementation concerns. Um, I think our biggest uh, implementation concern is with um, implementing like the training for the officers. Like, um, you know, I meet now, I meet with the police department on a lot of these recommendations and policies and stuff like that. So we, we basically talk about like the actual policy and how that reads and what we wanted to say. Um, but I think the, the concern is like, okay, now that you have a policy, now we have to train the officers on the policy and what that looks like and how do we want that to, to go about. Um, the logistical concerns of, of training all the police officers uh, on this stuff. And then like, not just to have like one training, is there any way we could, you know, have it so um, that it sticks, you know, more than once. Um, so those are my, so that's the presentation. I'm sorry it was condensed, um, but I am open to take questions. Yes, Kim. Yeah, just curious, if you have additional, like this, uh, this seems a little bit more abbreviated. I'm curious to know, like, you know, what, if you had the time, what uh, would you, what else would you like to like cover from this audit uh, that hasn't received as much airtime with like among city council or the public yet? Um, you know, I mean, all of them get a lot of time from me, um, but I, I can tell you, like, a lot was the cell phone cases, um, and, and these, when I say the cell phone cases, I mean, like, um, there was several cases where, um, bystanders would be recording police officers with their cell phone and police officers would come up and like snatch the, the cell phones uh, from them and the recommendation was to get you know, a policy on you know, bystanders recording officers. And then um, when an officer does take a cell phone for whatever reason, like um, when, do, when does the search or when does the seizure um, start? Like um, is taking someone's cell phone and just scrolling, is that a search, you know, uh, kind of define that. I think most people would say, yeah, that's a search. But um, to have a policy in place or to train officers on um, cell phones specifically, because 
I think, you know, cell phones in our time now, I mean, medical information, your, your entire life is pretty much on your bank information. Your entire life is on your cell phone. So if you take someone's cell phone, that's, that's taken a big deal of their life. So um, I, I think more time on that, which the police department has shown, um, they have told me that they're, they're gonna get policies on cell phones. And that's something we do talk about in our meetings. Um, Handcuffing uh, minor children, that was a big one for the, um, for the presentation. Um, there was a lot of back and forth between even whether that was um, a violation or not, right? So um, I, they, they have said that they are gonna um, take another police department's policy on that one. Um, inconsistent tow procedures was one that I talked about in June where um, okay, you towed someone's car, but when can they leave the scene, right? And then when can they, or what property can they get from their car? Um, there's, no, there's no procedure and it, it was kind of inconsistent. Like sometimes um, SPD would sustain, sustain a case against a police officer for that. And then other times they wouldn't. So, so, so you know, why that? Um, yeah. So I think those were like the big, the big ones to me. Mm. And before we continue on commissioner um, questions, do we have members of the public wishing to speak on this item? Thank you, Chair. I have no speaker slips on this item. Great, thank you. With that, any other commissioner questions or comments on this? Commissioner Carter. Watson presented this report to the city council June. Yes, ma'am. So we got June or two now to implement some changes. Um, I personally, I don't know how long ago it was, pre-COVID, I observed the academy, their use and force training, which some of it incorporated uh, consensual stops, they would do all these scenarios and they would get critiqued by different teams. Each team had like a lieutenant and the recruits was assigned to teams and they would run all the recruits through the various scenarios, but due to the different lieutenants and their training, you may get differences of opinion as to whether or not the recruit um, did the task correctly. So that was one thing that I observed. Uh, number two, garbage in, garbage out. So I know that the Attorney General, when they did their investigation, there was an issue with inside training. So, and I did observe that the training given on search and seizure to the new recruits is in-house. So that's a flaw right there, especially since the data is showing that the recruits are not implementing the law correctly. So if you have the captains and lieutenant or whoever is supposed to be the in-house expert on search and seizure, they're training the new recruits, but they don't really understand what the law is themselves, um, then you have garbage in and garbage out. So um, you said the recommendation was for the district attorney's office to train 
who? The, is it the new recruits or everybody in SAC PD? Yeah, uh, it was for uh, the district attorney to train, um, not necessarily the new recruits, but for the captains, the deputies, and also the, the police officers. So they did do something where, again, we were having so much back and forth between, um, I guess, myself and the police department that they did reach out to somebody in the district attorney's office. So that person did come out and give um, a training. Um, and I think this was back in January. Um, and the hopes was that they, from that training, they were gonna uh, devise uh, a bigger training to train the actual um, officers. So not necessarily the recruits because they get it in the, in the training, um, in the, in the academy, but also the people who are like, you know, boots on the actual officers that kind of do this every day. Um, and then in my meetings with the, 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 the policy people now, um, I think we were throwing around ideas of how do we train officers currently. And one of the things was um, at roll call, having these people act out these scenarios, whether they be officers or people from um, the, 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 the district attorney's office to come in and, and tell officers during the roll call. And we all know, you know, roll call is kind of like the, the meetings that officers attend before they go out to their shift. Um, usually they do get some type of training and, and something. Maybe they watch a video on like seatbelt training or something like that. But this would be people actually coming in and um, having scenarios for officers. Um, and I guess in that scenario, uh, either the person conducting it would be critiquing it uh, and telling officers the what not to do and what to do. Um, but I think we're still, like you said, this happened in June, and so we're, we're still trying to figure out the best way to do it and the most effective way to do it. And I did like the, the, the roll call um, situation, um, but, but yeah, I mean, yeah, so those were, those were two off the top of my head. Okay, well, my recommendation would be that uh, impartial third party give the presentation to the new recruits. Not someone in-house, not someone slowly from the district attorney's office um, because they're gonna have their bias. Yeah. Um, but if you have a third party that doesn't have a dog in the fight, then they should be able to give a fair and accurate interpretation of the law and convey it in such a way that they're not, they don't have a public defender bias and they don't have a DA bias. They just give them the straight law, run through the scenarios, and um, hopefully we get a better outcome. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I agree 100%. Also, I don't know what ongoing educational training is available, not just these courses, but I know that the Alameda County DA's office they put out a publication, it's not really a newsletter, um, but they put out a publication monthly on search and seizure and other issues. So if there's some Supreme Court case that recently came down, it would most likely be in the publication. I don't know whether the officers of SAC PD utilize that resource you know, I don't know whether they have to do it on their own or whether SAC PD can order it and the, the uh, resource could be in the library or some space uh, at, CP, at SAC PD where if somebody wants to take it on themselves to 
keep abreast of the law, they can go look at that resource. I've looked at that resource. I'm a former de deputy district attorney. It's an excellent resource and it's usually current. So that is another thing that, you know, to keep abreast of the law, um, check out other resources. Also the peace officer's handbook, somebody needs to critique it. It's not always 100% accurate. Um, I know from personal experience, there's some wrong information in there. And then when I have when I was a deputy district attorney engaging with law enforcement, they want to preach to me about the peace officer handbook, and I'm trying to tell them that it's wrong. Long story short, we had a 1538.5 motion, a motion to dismiss. Officer got crucified. I tried to tell him that the premise was wrong. He did not have any PC to do what he did, but he kept preaching to me about the peace officer's handbook. I said, okay. So, so the peace officer's handbook that's not always kept current. It's not always accurate, so somebody can review that uh, as a resource to weed out any bugs, try to keep it accurate. So at the top of my head, those are the three recommendations that I have. Um, but the training is crucial, and you know, it's a little disappointing that the recruits are not getting accurate training on crucial issues. And that, as you, you said, they, some of them don't understand an investigatory stop, what's a proper detention, how does something transition from a detention to a ballot arrest, what can you do when you cross that threshold and you moved into the ballot arrest ter territory, what can you search and not search. Everything is not a consensual, a consensual search. And they kind of push that in the academy, the consensual search. Um, so, no. Yeah, I mean, I, I agree with you 100%. Um, and that's one of the reasons why I think, you know, in the report, I think I made the first issue was to update the, the manual. I mean, you, if you're relying for something on 2007, it's got to be, you have to, especially with the Fourth Amendment, you have to constantly update uh, and revise these things because, like you said, you know, something can change like that. Something that you've been doing your whole career could change very quickly. Um, so yeah, if you're relying on something old law or bad law, I mean, that's an issue. And as far as policy, policy is good, but it won't mean anything if you have improper training. And if they don't conceptually understand the nuances in the law, they won't even know how to implement the policy because they won't be able to issue spot to realize when something is at issue. So it goes back to the training and really drilling down on the nuances and for a, a recruit to be able to ascertain the timeline. You know, you take somebody's driver's license, that's a detention. They, they're not going anywhere without their driver's license. So then the issue become how long did you hold them there? What's reasonable? They got a bunch of case law on all these subjects. And so if they're being trained in the academy properly, then most of this stuff they should know. And we shouldn't really have all these search and seizure issues unless, as you say, they are pretextual. <clears throat> then it really, you know, that lets you know they know what the law is, they know what the training is, they're stopping them anyway for a different reason. I'm done. Thank you, Commissioner. Our next question comes from Commissioner Buenrostro. Well, first of all, thanks for the report and the, and the updates. and all the research and data that you've been doing in, in this area. Um, and w one way that I'm looking at the report is that it's, it's a diagnostic of what's happening 
Um, and I'm glad that there's more resources that were allocated um, to look at this further because we're, we're basing this on the complaints that were filed. So we can assume that there's more of this happening out there with folks that are not filing complaints. Um, and one of the concerning parts of the report is, is how disproportionate it seems that uh, communities of color have been targeted, um, at least based on the data that we're looking from these complaints and how in a lot of case, in a lot of cases, if we look at the tainted windows, if we look at other stops, um, it seems like it was a pretext to do additional search. So um, I echo what uh, Commissioner Carter said about training being necessary. Um, I'm wondering if there's anything in here or any, any recommendations around accountability um, for the supervisors and also uh, goals that can be set for the command centers because it does seem like there's some command centers that have a lot more complaints than others. Um, I know there's different context in different command centers, but looking at what that accountability looks like, because I, I understand the training is important and I echo that, but if there's no culture change, then you can go to a training session, get good feedback in training, but if, if the culture doesn't change, then I can see folks going back to old habits and forgetting the, the procedures that um, that might have been covered in that, in that training. So I, I, I would just echo the need for more accountability, may, maybe looking at what it looks like um, by uh, supervisor. Uh, and then another question that I had is, is for a police officer um, that is looking at a situation, is there a process for them to be able to file complaints? Uh, so if they see something improper being ha uh, occurring fr from a colleague, is there a process wh where they can raise that issue in a way that's anonymous and that <laughs> that doesn't really necessarily um, yeah, call them I, out, per se? Yeah, I think there's uh, the whistleblower hotline, I believe. Um, th that, that's the avenue, but I've definitely reviewed cases from officers who have complained on other officers. Um, in those cases, they were not anonymous. But, um, well, the, I don't think the, the officer who got complained of knew, but um, I've definitely reviewed cases where SPD officers have complained against other SPD officers. That, that, that's good. And, and I mean, I'm, I'm just thinking about the, the need for the teams to hold each other accountable in, in, in these types of processes. Um, and then another question that I had was around, um, just additional resources that, be, that might be necessary for the implementation of the recommendations. It, it, do, you, do you have a sense that, that the resources that we have are enough? I, it looks like a lot of resources were around doing further investigations, but um, do, do you get a sense that the police department is moving fast enough with these recommendations, or at least has a sense of urgency for, for them? I mean, it's still extremely early. Um, I would say, from, I guess, where we started this year to now. Uh, I, I like the direction of where it's heading. I think it could be better in certain avenues, but um, from where it was earlier, like when this, you know, all the hoopla over the audit was, was first enacted to where we are like right now, um, I, I think we are moving in, in the right direction. I do, like I said, I meet with the, the SPD's policy people um, just about every month. Um, 
and I think those meetings have been um, mostly, um, what's a good word, uh, productive, you know? Um, so it, it looks like, you know, they're, they're, they're saying the right stuff and doing the right stuff, but it's still early. Commissioner uh, Wayne Johnson. I, I, I wanna echo everything that the other commissioners have already said, but also add that uh, a question. Did, are the forms that the officers fill out, you know, the incident report forms, uh, do, do they have fill-in boxes which are related to these areas of insufficient da data capture, such as, is there a box they actually have to fill out relative to justification for the stop? Is there a box that's dedicated to uh, a checkoff of Fourth Amendment, you know, notifications and the like? Training is great. You know, it also becomes dependent upon the trainer uh, as well as the retention. So, but if, so if it's in, if it's included in the form that they have to fill out, that's yet another reminder uh, to be able to fill out and capture the data that's necessary. I'm not a police officer and I don't work for the police, but I think um, what they're gonna start doing is um, for, for, for the RIPA stuff, um, they're gonna start, so um, when they stop someone, um, there, there is a drop down menu for I believe like why you stopped that person and stuff like that, but um, to articulate like, why did I stop the person? Um, improper, uh, excuse me, um, I think it's like, investigative detention and that's that's really it and that's kind of vague so i think the recommendation is you know to articulate why and i, I think they're going to start being trained at least this is what i get from uh, my meetings with the policy people that they are going to now require their officers to have a detailed explanation of like why you stopped the investigative detention but why did you feel that like what was suspicious about this person why did you stop them so there is a drop down menu but i want to take it a step further to actually for the officer to write down like what was suspicious about the person what was the reasonable suspicion what was the problem like what were the particulars i guess does that answer your question yeah okay Again, I don't like I don't see the um, the forms that often. Sometimes, like I do get the RIPA data, and it, it's in a different format than what the officer receives. Mm -hmm. But to answer, I, I do think there. I mean, I, I, I believe it was like a drop down menu, but the drop down menu was pretty vague, and so the recommendation is like like actually write it down. Okay. All right, uh, again, it sounds like some of what my concern is is happening in, in some way, shape, or form. I would just encourage the SPD, you know, just to take a fresh look at the form to make sure that, that it's reinforcing the message that's embodied in, in the policy and the operating procedures, okay, to be able to capture as much as possible. Thank you. Thank you so much for being here. One of the questions that I have, and, and I just want to acknowledge, this is really complicated stuff, and it's hard work, and it is difficult when you're part of a larger department or institution to acknowledge the things that are going wrong, and to have it be publicly expressed, right? It's, it's, not, it's like we all kind of have seen the coverage, and we know that there are issues in our department that we need to fix. Um, having said that, I think I am very encouraged to hear that there is some progress being made. Um, I feel like sometimes um, it feels like progress is made by 
what feels like thousand, death by a thousand cuts, but I will take it. Um, I am kind of curious though, just because I think it's important as we continue to do progress to stay on top of things, make sure that there's accountability, make sure there's quality when it comes to training and that it's consistent. I think one of the things that I'm hearing and would like to see is that the training becomes second nature. Because I think a lot of the times we talk about you get into a position, you're trained, and then training doesn't happen for another year or two years. And at the end of the day, given that these interactions are happening day to day, this has to become like second nature. It has to be something you don't even think about, right? And I just, I found myself driving today and I was like, I'm gonna take Riverside. Before I knew it, I was on the freeway because that's what I do day in and day out. And so to me, the question is, how do we get some of this training and some of these best practices to become second nature? And I think it's what we're saying is, Consistency in training, good quality training, but that is being reinforced over and over, not just like once a year, twice a year, or whatever that may be. So I'm heartened to hear that there is a conversation happening about some of the recommendations. Is it correct? Did I hear you say that all of the recommendations are gonna be taken by SPD? That's what they told me. Is there, the <laughs> fair, we have been having similar conversations who can understand that frustration and lack of clarity at times. Um, one of the questions that I do have, you said that there was gonna be a timeline for when the recommendations were gonna, were gonna move forward. Has that timeline been given? So I think, um, and maybe I misspoke, the timeline was for when the police department was gonna send the recommendations to the city attorney, and then the city attorney is gonna um, review it, the, 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 excuse me, the, recommend, the policies. So I think the, the timeline was just limit it to the police department, make a policy and give it to the uh, city attorney. I'm, I'm almost certain that's what it is. No, and, and that's fine, but there is, I think part of the, the thing that is important is that there are timelines that we are trying to meet. Yeah, and that's part of my job is to hold them accountable to the timelines and make sure this doesn't, you know, fall by the wayside or anything like that, so. Um, you know, I have that as another like part of my job to do, to, to actually attend these meetings and actually to make sure that the recommendations are turning, excuse me, turning into policies and that, um, you know, you're not just gonna sweep this under the rug, this is actually gonna come to fruition somehow. If I may chair, um, I think as part of your agenda packet, the responses that SPD provided to the council and to OPSA are also included in your packet, if I'm not mistaken. and, and the format is similar to the format that, I, that you remember, the new format is how recommendations are given. And in some of them, it actually has a timeline at the bottom. Uh, for example, I'm looking at recommendation six here, and it says the new electronic search and seizure policy will be created and will be ready for city attorney review in approximately 90 days. So it gives an actual number of days that it will be presented. Thank you for clarifying. And then my, my final question that I had, um, I just, I forgot it, so I'm gonna have to come back. No worries. And in the meantime, I know Commissioner Bliss will go ahead and ask some thoughtful questions. Yes, I really appreciate, uh, appreciate this overview and presentation, and honestly, I mean, I think this is something that may, be, may require additional follow-up uh, to really just kind of get regular updates. Uh, is something that I would like to see. Um, having, uh, read through a little bit of the police response uh, to these recommendations. I mean, in re watching um, uh, the meeting from June, there seemed to be like a lot of contention um, 
uh, with the point to it being essentially like, you know, coming down to like, a, they, like you know, they said they said sort of thing, you know, like their word against, uh, against yours. And a lot of the, uh, this information that, like, you know, that I noticed from uh, your report, I mean, really verifies and, and just reinforces the existing metrics that we have uh, from previous uh, audits or, you know, studies of police department outcomes. I mean, the most recent, most comprehensive one that we had before this one um, around all uh, department uh, outcomes when it comes to, you know, stops, searches, um, or like, you know, vehicle and pedestrian stops, um, as well as use of force, found that black residents uh, in Sacramento were overwhelmingly targeted um, by, like, by every measure of police force and service that was provided. And, um, early, like, you know, a couple meetings ago, we had Dr. Watson here talking about the complaint activities report, uh, which found that the top three, um, uh, the highest complaint allegations from PD was was not just improper search and seizure, but also service and discourtesy, which we heard uh, at least one story tonight uh, uh, highlight, like just reinforcing a lot of that. When I saw the meeting, uh, the, the update uh, from uh, last month around it, a lot of, like, I particularly uh, was deeply concerned, if not upset, by just kind of how um, the recommendations were glossed over. Like, I mean, not to get into the specific language, because, I mean, one of the complaints that we heard from uh, during the mental health, or, I'm sorry, the uh, military equipment use uh, conversations and community forums was that how a lot of these reports and a lot of the policies that are being presented to the public are oftentimes just, like, confusing, drowned in legalese that many, like, many everyday community members who don't have time to study these policies like we do um, go over their heads. But a lot of what I heard and, and things that uh, were brought up to me after the meeting uh, by members of the public was just like, essentially that there, there was a, uh, a community advisory body that was presented that essentially like where uh, members of the public kind of heard that the implicit bias training, the racist outcomes that came about from that were, uh, you know, that uh, were kind of highlighted both in these reports and past reports, uh, essentially said like the implicit bias training was was just fine and that pretextual stops um, that were being made by the police department or the policy thereof um, uh, was, was going well by at least people that were, you know, talked with, like that interact with the police uh, in this advisory body. Um, I'm curious to know and, you know, I see uh, members of the police department and uh, welcome them to answer any questions when it comes to this community advisory body because the way I heard it during um, the September conversation, it sounded like this advisory body was essentially fulfilling or supplementing, uh, if not circumventing, our role as the city council's appointed civilian oversight body. But um, I'm curious to know how much of these recommendations really apply to like, more, like more to like cultural changing, like, cu like cultural training um, and changes being made to the department versus policy changes. Does that make sense? It, it does. Um, I feel like you, you said like many questions <laughs> in, in that speech. Do, 
And it sounds like you want to talk to the police. I am interested and uh, would invite um, members of the department to, you know, to answer it, to respond if they have any responses at this time or um, uh, assistant city manager, uh, Lara. I guess I'll narrow my questions down because I had a few that came up um, from some of the charts that were shown by OPSA. So maybe speak specifically okay. to those first. Yeah. Um, I noticed, you know, when it came to uh, the sustained cases, uh, you know, more than double the amount of unlawful pat-down searches uh, when subject to independent review by OPSA, uh, uh, you know, they, they found like even like more, more than double the amount of sustained uh, cases and complaints uh, than SPD found when they initially investigated. Is this just based on each case or not, uh, is this just cases or is this also allegations? Cases. Cases. Okay. And you said that the Ripper report from uh, 2019 to 2022 does list demographics of PD stops, searches, et cetera. Do you happen to have like some of those numbers available or is it we just have to look through the Ripper report ourselves? Um, I don't have them. I mean, I, I downloaded them from the Ripper website. I don't have them right okay. now, but um, they do have the demographic. The Ripper stuff does have the demographic of the people who were stopped. They have, um, I believe, the age. I mean, it's, it's self-reported by the police department, but it definitely does have the demographic stuff. I think, yeah, when, it, when they were stopped, where they were stopped at. So the, the RIPA stuff is pretty um, substantial. And I believe if you do download it, I think you can go back until 2018, if I'm not mistaken. Okay. That's really good to know, because I remember on the follow-up log, too, that... Um the commission had requested a presentation on the RIPA report, uh, at least for, like, you know, as recently as 2019, I believe. And I think that would be something that we follow up on, especially uh, as a part of our, the second half of this year, as we're doing this uh, second part of our work plan. Um, when it came to the type of police citizen interactions, what percentage of funds slash time are spent on pretextual traffic stops? Were, was, did OPSA, was able, OPSA able to like, review that or have an assessment of that or? How much money was spent on each individual traffic stop? Funds or time? Um, I did list the time um, in, in, the, in the graph uh, with the, for the pretextual stops. Um, as far as like how much money that comes to, I'm terrible at math, so I'm, I'm not the person to ask there, but um, I did list the time. Um, these time is in minutes unless it's um, a semicolon in between them. But um, I did try to list like how much time this uh, improper window tenant stops lasted. Gotcha. So that was just like a sampling of the amount of time. There, there's not like a comprehensive time when it came to like other pretextual stop reasons or, or whatnot was there. I'm just curious to know like when it came to like pretextual stops as a whole, which I believe the interaction showed more than just uh, the window tinting, was there like an overall aggregate time when it came to listing that? No, you're right. I should have probably um, had like a, an aggregate or a medium of the time, like the average time of the stop. So that's a good idea uh, for the future. But um, for this report, no, I just listed kind of like broadly the time it took from the body-worn camera. Mm -hmm. Appreciate that. And then... Um, the report also uh, mentions what percentage of interactions, stops, calls are like are made with black people when it came to um, complaints by race. I know, like you know, uh, it was highlighted in the report that black people make up just 12% of the city population, but were almost or comprised almost 80% of uh, the complaints that OPSA uh, investigated. Is that correct? 
Yeah, 70, yeah, it was in the 70. Okay. Yeah. Almost, yeah. Uh, what, per, like, was there a percentage listed in there? I, I'm sorry that I'm asking directly from the report, but no it's worries, helpful no to me. What percentage of interactions or stops or, uh, stops or calls were made with black people from those complaints? Yeah, I got me putting on my glasses again. <laughs> Thank you. So not just um, pretextual stops, but for the people who complained, um, male and female over 70 were black. Does this answer your question or no? Sort of, I guess, uh, you said, so overall it was 70%. That's what, like, that's what this chart ultimately shows is like that of those 70 some odd percent uh, of uh, complaints made that that was like the percentage of interactions of stops or calls that PD made in these cases, like. I don't know about 70%. I think there's a difference between percentage and, or is there, so maybe not, maybe, I think you're right. So yeah, 70 percent of the people who uh, complained about improper search and seizure for the past two years were African-American. Okay. Um, then there was a, I had additional question that was raised when um, Commissioner Carter brought up around um, the requirements on training, um, which I support all of those recommendations and I've been writing some of these down so that we can like get those in and, uh, and consider those during the second half of this year, or the remaining half of this year. Um, is there, uh, either by post standards or by uh, Sac like Sacramento Police Department standards, um, a required amount of time that officers, whether that be recruit or you know, um, full-fledged officers are required to go through search and seizure trainings? I know, I, I'm pretty sure if I heard you correctly and I've heard the department before that these are not Recur like these are not trainings that are required beyond the, the academy, if I'm not mistaken. But if they are, is there any standard of, like, of time that is required for police officers to go through this training? Yeah, I forget the exact um, numbers, but there's definitely um, like credit hours that they do take in the academy that, and I think it's learning domain 16, um, which talks about improper search and seizures, um, or search and seizures, that's probably what they call it. But there is um, a certain amount of credit hours that they do have to have learning about um, search and seizure law. I don't know what those credit hours are. Credit hours being like from school, like from college level schooling or? Um... Yeah. Okay. Uh, and I would ask this too of uh, the police department if they choose to um, uh, to respond to any of these questions of like if there is a standard for post when it comes to requiring police officers to um, the, the minimum requirements uh, for search and seizure training, how many hours are required? Good evening. I'm uh, Lieutenant Clayton Buchanan, um, SAC PD. I don't know the exact number, um, Commissioner Bliss, what it is, but what we have done now is on our transparency page, we have linked every learning domain posts, um, 
portal where you go right on there and you can find every learning domain and the hours that are covered in there. I can report back with what hours are mandated. I don't know that off the top of my head, though. Heard. And while you're, like, shoot, I just had the question in my head that I um, spaced it. Uh, but um, I wanted to go back to, to um, the how you are informing yourselves when it, came to, when it comes to like implementing some of these recommendations. Um, during the uh, September presentation, I noted there was a community advisory group called Audit to Action um, that, uh, if I'm mistaken, was, were they uh, specifically tasked or um, was, it was this audit brought up when it came to like examining both the findings and recommendations? No, um, the way that, that format worked was we reached out to um, people that attended our Citizen Academy and other um, community-based organizations throughout the, the city, and we invited them to come and meet with us and have a conversation. We presented only like four or five questions. Don't quote me on the exact number of questions. I believe it was, it might have been five, but I, I think four or five, I can't. And I can't tell you, I, I can't remember, I thought in my head they were, um, they, they were, they were based around like a lot of procedural justice questions as far as like, how do you feel about someone asking you probation or parole? Um, and then it was questions of that sort. I don't know. I don't want to quote, like misquote myself here, so I'm not. I don't. I don't know them off the top of my head. But that's how the the, the forum worked, and it was like breakout groups where people got together and gave us community feedback on on the way to, to get our policies going. Um, but in the in the future, like I told you in our in our um, subcommittee meeting, is we're we're creating this policy review committee. First of all, I want to say I want to give Dwight, um, the Inspector General, some props. He's he's done a really good job bringing up some good recommendations for our police department. And we value his recommendations, and I think the relationship going back and forth because he's given us a fair and impartial look at our department has been going well, and we would continue that. So, so I want Dwight. Thank you for that. I mean, so I mean, it's it's been a good relationship so far. Um, but this policy review committee, the vision we have for, like I told you on the phone, we don't have it written down on paper yet, yeah. is where we're going to take input from you know the commission, the, the OPSA, the community, and we'll like start with a policy for re re revising it. We'll say, hey, we're going to revise this policy, give you, guys, give you guys time to look at it, and then you guys can come to us and say, this is what we'd like to see to change in there. So when we revise it, we can actually create that. That policy would go through the full vetting process and then come go to the chief of police and then go back to the policy review committee for a second meeting and say, here's what's written. What are your recommendations based on that? So that's going to get community input, the, the commission's input, and then input from OPSA and IG also. So I think that's going to help a lot of our policy questions because you know that's I think that's right now is like you guys have these, these this input you guys want to give us and it's taken a long time to get there. I think this is going to expedite that process in the future and it won't be for every policy, it'll be for predetermined policies. And we'll reach out to ask like what policies you get, would you guys like to see reviewed? Heard. I I appreciate that clarification between the policy review and the community advisory group that was included in the presentation in September because that that to me I thought of as two distinct. Uh, different groups, and I wasn't sure if that audit to action group uh, was specifically tasked with like reviewing, like, or specifically asked these questions during this the period of this audit. Um, like, you know, since the audit was published um, to the public, and the uh, and and PD responded to that, or if this was done like before, or like as kind of supplemental with all that. I don't know how the, how the fruition of it came, um, but it, it was it was after the audit when it when it occurred. But it wasn't based on we didn't hand them any policies. We had we handed them like three or four four or five questions. Again, I don't remember the number, but we handed them questions, and that we just had discussions about those questions. So it wasn't like, hey, here's our here's our use of force policy. Please review it first and tell you what you, what you, we think should add or what, what problems you see with it. It was nothing like that. 
So it wasn't a technical conversation. It was more of an open community input to see how we could structure formulate policies because our goal is to start creating policies with the outward facing, like you said, where, where it's easier for the community to read. Instead, instead of a legalese where it's not a technical manual anymore, but it's like this is what officers you know, can or cannot do based on the policy. Appreciate that. And, and uh, I, I was going to also request uh, from this, if you, have, uh, if you have copies of the questions that were asked to the community members, if, we could, uh, if you could send those to the commission, to the chair and I, just to, if, if that's okay. I want to just get a little clarification because I know that this is something that the chief had reached out to me about. She and I were not able to fully connect on what it is. But from what I understand, that this is something that it's based on the use of force group work that happened that was very helpful. It doesn't sound like anything is concrete yet. I think it's being developed. I think the commission was invited to provide input. Again, I just got it from a voicemail. I need to connect with her and try to understand. And maybe it might be prudent for us to actually have a presentation from PD to just better understand the process. I don't think the intent was to exclude the commission. They're trying to figure out how to create a more inclusive process, is my understanding. That, that, is, that is correct. There was, there was no, I mean, if, if we, if that we can portray it that way, that's not what our intent was at all. So it wasn't trying to exclude you guys at all. It was trying to get everybody, like more input from other people also, right? Because that's, that's I think that makes it, like, like the chair said, it, it makes it more inclusive for us to create a better policy for our officers and for the community. And thank you for being here tonight. I know that it's been a bone of contention. So maybe what we can do as part of the November meeting is kind of bring a little more clarity as to what the process is going to be and how the commission is envisioned to be included in the process, just to make sure that mm -hmm. questions are, are clarified. Want to make sure that we kind of get ahead and there's no miscommunication. So maybe something that we can work on for the November agenda. And, that, and that's referring to the policy review committee that, that we're talking about. Okay, perfect. Yeah, because we haven't, we don't have on a paper. We haven't got it fully vetted yet. So once I do, I can have it done by November. That's why it won't be a problem. And one second. I yes, ma'am. It, it was audit, audit to action. It was just a community, a, a group of community members that were invited to to come and give us input. Okay, so it's totally separate from. I don't know if it still exists. There was something in existence called the Police Advisory Committee. It's so this I, community I, thing. I, is totally I can't speak on that. I'm, I'm that. not aware of what you're talking, what, what you're referring to. I know for our use of force policy, we did have uh, a community group that came in, but I wasn't a part of that, and I, I'm, not, I'm not aware of that. So, and I don't know what the, you know what that is, Rudy. Yeah, Chan. Um, and I know the chief had reached out to the commission in regards to this, but uh, you may be referencing the, uh, the policy review committee that we are uh, in the process of setting up. Um, I believe that's what you No, I was just trying to get a better understanding of the community advisory, whatever they're calling it, whether it was just right. uh, opportunity to get feedback yes. from the community on this particular issue. I know in the past, I had been part of the police advisory committee. Each chief of police selects a group of people right. and gets feedback from that group. So you got to be appointed by the chief of police to be on his little special committee. So I was trying to figure out when, he, when Commissioner Bliss said community advisory review, whether that was the modern day police review committee, but it doesn't sound like that. It sounds like something totally different. It is kind of different. So Commissioner Carter, you were, were you part of Chief Hahn's advisory Real. board, right? 
The Brazils, okay. So, so basically, I think we're talking about two different things here. One is what uh, Lieutenant Buchanan described was um, a group of uh, community members that, that, that Chief Lester had invited together to, um, you know, uh, basically go over with some of us some of the concerns that came up from the OPSA audit. So that was kind of like a, um, a separate, I think, than what we're talking about here. So that was, like Lieutenant Buchanan uh, talked about, a chance for uh, community members and, and careholders that we work with, that our different commands have worked with in the past and are currently working with, for us to get some of their uh, feelings on what the, uh, the OPSA audit found, right? So uh, some of their cares and concerns and, 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 and just the, the opinions and viewpoints of people that, that we work closely with on a regular basis in the community, whether they be they were business, uh, um, you know, business uh, people, or whether they were peace advocates, like from Oak Park and, 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 and groups such as Brother to Brother, people that the police department uh, uh, really relies upon uh, for, uh, you know, not only to help with trust but also with transparency. So that was an opportunity for Chief Lester to, to invite some of the community members, uh, you know, that that a lot of our staff knows and a lot of our management staff is familiar with to kind of get. Uh, their guidance of what they saw from the OPSA audit, not to supplant this commission or anybody else. So that was what that was for. Um, the other things that, that we may be talking about also is, like Lieutenant Buchanan mentioned, that we'd be talking about in the future is, uh, and the chief mentioned it in our OPSA response, is a uh, policy review committee. And part of that, uh, the chief indicated at the uh, council meeting in September, uh, was that we would be inviting members of this commission to be a part of that, uh, which I think is kind of unprecedented for what's happened in the past, but um, to invite members of this commission as well as representatives from the IG's office to be part of that commission to review our policies as we're formulating them. So moving forward, that is one of the recommendations from uh, the Inspector General that we're going to be adopting. And as was mentioned earlier, um, of the 19 recommendations that we isolated, uh, that we took from the OPSA's uh, various, I think, 10 findings. There was 19 separate recommendations. And the police department responded to that, reduced it into writing, and it should be part of your packet. Um, and every one of those recommendations were, were uh, you know, we either articulated that the police department has currently adopted or is in the process of adopting uh, f uh, moving forward. So uh, we're working with the IG's office, uh, as uh, Mr. White and Lieutenant Buchanan mentioned, uh, to do that. So that's all part of the process that's coming uh, forthcoming. And then to, uh, in answer to an earlier question you had, my apologies, uh, search and seizure, the learning domain for the, the basic uh, trainees in the police academy is a minimum of 40 post hours. Um, there are additional hours that we do um, through various trainings that exceed post uh, minimum recommendations, but that's a minimum, recommend, I mean, minimum um, number of hours that is um, mandated by the state of California for that, but the, the recruits get much more of that in other learning domains as well and in training. And then I think another part of your question to Commissioner Carter was uh, in regards to the training that we're doing with respect to search and seizure in the uh, DA's office. And yes, the uh, DA's office on recommendation of the Inspector General, that training has been assigned to all officers um, in the police department uh, to undergo uh, the DA's office, the tr their training that they gave in person to um, some of our officers was actually recorded and that, it was, and that it was given as an acumen assignment, which is, you know, the city's learning portal um, for officers to uh, watch that training, uh, to understand that training, and also to um, um, basically electronically sign that they receive the training. Uh, 
and that and you know the hours spent on that is all tracked electronically. Um, that was an earlier question I think you had. Okay, I googled um, that educational source from Alameda County DA. Yes. It's called the Point of View. Yes, we are familiar with that. That's the uh, um, um, I think the abbreviation is the ACLCDA. Um, this is a point of view, and they have articles, and I just Googled it. So their 2021 edition dealt with crime scene searches, misdemeanor arrests, workplace searches, suppression of evidence. They have articles on probable, probable cause to search, the nexus requirement. Um, they have recent cases. People versus McDaniel, 2021 issue. Under what circumstances may officers order a passenger in a stopped vehicle to remain inside? So it's an excellent resource. I don't know how many of your officer, officers utilize the resource, but it's called a point of view. So I encourage SACPD to subscribe if you don't already subscribe um, and at least have one copy available for any officer just wants to kind of keep abreast on hot issues. Thank you, Commissioner. Yes, that's that's a great recommendation, and uh, we are familiar with that um, that website and with the newsletter that uh, Alameda County DA puts on your right. It is very relevant. They come up with a lot of relevant case law, um, you know, whether it be the Ninth Circuit or the U.S. Supreme Court, uh, things that, that are timely and, as you mentioned earlier, um, you know, may not have yet been updated in Peace Officers' uh, legal source book. So thank you. Well, one last thing. So... The community focus group on the audit, and I'm calling it a focus group, but I know it was people that Chief Lester um, engages in on a daily basis. So my question is, in the future, will any of the commissioners be invited to participate in that focus group scenario? Separate from the policy review, because we are still part of the community. I attended the Citizens Academy 100 years ago. I've attended most of the workshops that Chief Hahn put on, and some of my other colleagues attended the same workshops. So right. Understood. I think that one of the, uh, the things that we asked for, at the, or at least uh, Chief Lester asked for at the uh, September Council meeting and was approved was uh, SAC PD as a best practice is going to... Um, reorganize itself and institute an office of uh, internal compliance. In many other departments, it's known as the Office of Constitutional Policing. But we looked at that. The chief looked at that. It was, it was her idea um, to uh, you know, pull some of us out for a special project to, to put together a Office of Internal Compliance. And one of the, the missions of this new office that's being created, um, and we asked for uh, you know, some additional FTEs from council, which was approved, uh, one of the uh, missions of this new office and a new internal compliance manager or internal compliance officer will be to liaison with not only OPSA but also with the police commission and the inspector general. So, um, you know, as we get this thing moving and, and uh, personnel are selected and someone is chosen to be a professional staff member, not a sworn member, but a professional staff member who will be in charge of internal compliance for our department. Um, these will be part of the, this will be part of the discussion on how um, you know we can best work with the commission as well as the IG's office and, the, and OPSA moving forward. Uh, so these are things that are priority of the chief of police. 
Um, she has, uh, you know, Lieutenant Buchanan and myself working on this as we speak. Uh, it is a priority of the department, a top priority of the department, uh, you know, in order to facilitate better, not only communication, but to work collaboratively with, uh, you know, the police commission as well as OPSA and the IG's office to institute um, police reform and best practices for our department and all of the recommendations that were given to us. So, um, you know, um, rest assured we are working on that, um, you know, um, with all of our, um, you know, efforts right now. Okay, so what division or unit do you work in? I am in the Office of the Chief uh, right now. Um, again, myself and Lieutenant Buchanan, uh, soon to be Captain Buchanan, um, have been uh, assigned, um, we were assigned after the OPSA audit back in July to work full-time not only on OPSA recommendations, but also um, to work with the Inspector General uh, in regards to these recommendations, all to, also to, compl uh, to create this new Office of Internal Compliance. Um, you know, first uh, the chief wanted proper research and look into the best practices and see how we could uh, best facilitate it and, and, and also to see what additional staff we would need from the city, which was approved by council. So we're going to move forward with that. Um, and, you know, our goal is to work collaboratively with or with careholders and with uh, um, parties such as OPSA and also with the police commission uh, in order to do that. And also we've got, uh, for example, uh, we're asking for assistance from um, uh, the U.S. DOJ as well uh, through their COPS office, Community Oriented Policing Office. Uh, and, uh, Lieutenant uh, Buchanan and I have already met with their office. Uh, so that'll be an additional layer to help us best institute uh, an internal compliance office for, uh, for police reform. There's a Thank lot you. going on right now. So. Thank you. And I have Jason's, uh, Commissioner Jason Sample. Uh, this is for the Inspector General. Just, I'm going to go back to one of the slides that you showed. And this is maybe just a little bit of educating me and the community on this. So there was a slide that you showed where there is a gap between SPD and OPSA uh, cases, so sustained, unfounded. So what's the steps, what are the steps that happened after that? Uh, it was like a orange and green or blue. There we go. Uh, I have bad eyesight too. So what happens in those cases where, especially when you're looking at some of those cases where it's really a large gap, where the department has deemed it unfounded, but your office has deemed it sustained? What happens? Is there a review? Is there a change? Or is it just a data point? Yeah. Um, well, for this um, audit, no, nothing can kind of happen because these cases were uh, already closed. Were so closed. we looked at. But in practice, um, usually uh, I'll have a meeting with the captain who made the determination or the decision. Um, and for, for most cases, we can come to some type of uh, an agreement uh, over the, the discipline of the officer or not. Um, if we just cannot come to um, an agreement, we just can't, uh, we just can't come, I will, um, excuse me, alert uh, the director of OPSA, they will alert the um, chief of police, and then they'll have their meeting to determine. Uh, ultimately, um, all cases of discipline um, is, um, is determined by the uh, city manager. So in, in those cases where 
no one can come to a, um, a solution, then the city manager has authority to, to, to decide the case. And then I think kind of my, my final point, I won't uh, share what everyone else has shared in terms of, I do think that there is a need for greater training, especially these areas, and I'm happy to hear from our officers as well as yourself that there is a commitment to that. But one of the things that was very noticeable are the various districts. And again, please don't quiz me on which police district is what, mm -hmm. but some of the districts that really serve a high um, minority, African-American, Latino, uh, Southeast Asian, they seem to be disproportionately higher. And in some of the training, it might be advisable to have some more directed training in those particular areas. And maybe it's ongoing, maybe it is during the roll calls, whatever it may be, so that those officers really are equipped as they deal uniquely uh, with our communities. Because it seems like there's an issue. And No, I mean, 100%. Um, I think the department did do, like after the, the audit, they did do um, some, um, I think they got rid of some of the, I guess I, I, maybe I shouldn't speculate, but they did do some stuff after the, the audit that I, I did like. Um, I think what they were trying to do, what they would probably say is be proactive and, and kind of stop people for this stuff. But um, as you saw, like, you know, I mean, I think it, it, it deteriorates relationships more than actually getting stuff off the streets. Um, but yeah. Great, thank you for this work. Commissioner Carter. Okay, so there was 109 cases reviewed and 86 unfounded on SAC PD side. And so my question is, as to the cases that OPSA felt there was a violation, but SAC PD felt there wasn't, what is your analysis on why that occurred? So is if you looked at the law and you said it was a definite violation, I'm trying to figure out why, what was going on in SAC PD's head that they felt it wasn't. And I believe if I recall correctly, when you came before the city council in June, there was some disagreements on that issue and SAC PD, I guess, was looking at it through one lens and you were looking at it on another lens, but the law is the law, so either somebody's interpreted it incorrectly or they interpreted it wrong. Yeah, um, I, I would say with um, most of the ones that we found a violation with, um, there was either uh, a change in the law, like take welfare checks, um, where the Supreme Court is kind of, the California Supreme Court and the uh, United States Supreme Court has said you, you kind of need more um, exigency before you, you know, break someone's door down and, and start searching their house. Um, I, I think uh, training, um, I, I think, um, for instance, you had the, the little girl that was handcuffed. We said that was a violation and they vehemently denied that that was a violation. Um, you had stuff like that that I think, um, I hope, uh, will get settled for training with updating the, um, the manual, the search and seizure manual from 2007, 
to actually take an emphasis. Like there's been a big emphasis on uh, use of force, which I, I really like the uh, Sacramento Police Department has done. But when I first got here, there wasn't necessarily an emphasis on the Fourth Amendment and, and search and seizure. And I think there is now, finally. So I think uh, an, uh, an emphasis and an appetite to, to learn more and get more current on Fourth Amendment issues. And I think once you, you know more, you'll, you'll see more violations. Um, so that's what, I, that's what I'm hoping. I, I think it's just a training issue, um, but yeah. But what I'm trying to figure out, was it some issues that was just, they don't know the law. There's one thing not to know the law, and then there's another thing, it may not be a violation of law, but it doesn't meet the smell test, um, it's not gonna score you any points in the community. You know, yes, you had a right to legally stop them, but you should have used exercise better judgment and gone, you know, handle it a different way. So there are those circumstances, and then there are circumstances where you're just implementing the law wrong. You got your own interpretation. You're not keeping abreast of the new changes. You don't know what you're doing, and you're just wrong. So how much of the discrepancy between what OPSA felt was incorrect falls into you just don't know what you're doing versus it's not really wrong but should have handled it differently yeah i mean i think the the pretextual stop stuff um is definitely stuff that is technically legal i mean there's no i mean the law says you can stop people pretextually um but you know i i, I don't like it, and I think most citizens don't like it, and I think it has a disparate, in, um, uh, a disproportionate income uh, or impact in, in certain neighborhoods. So I think that's uh, a scenario of something that is constitutionally legal that we didn't, you know, unless there was some weird stuff that happened during the stop that I didn't say was a violation. But those are things that technically, you know, you can stop people for minor stuff. Um, so sure, um, but I, I think the the things that um, we did find was the, the improper, like the pat downs, the um, stopping people, uh, you know, maybe you say it's consensual, but you know, when the person says, can I leave? And you say, no, you can't, it's no longer consensual. So to, to me, it was, it was stuff that was pretty clear on its face that that was a violation. And I think it, it was mainly due to um, the people reviewing it maybe not being as abreast of Fourth Amendment issues as I think they could have been. Um, I was going to say something. Uh, and then that's when, um, you know, the back and forth happened. Oh, and that's one of the, um, one of the recommendations was One of the recommendations was for I'm sorry, but one of the recommendations was for um, uh, the certain captains not uh, identifying these things. And I think because 
I, I'm gonna hope because they have other stuff on their plate and stuff and they're doing captain stuff. So one of the recommendations is, okay, we'll just have all of the stuff um, be reviewed by the Internal Affairs Division. Those are the officers that kind of review this stuff. They attend um, specialized trainings in the matter. They actually um, can, can, can uh, put more time in reviewing a case and actually articulating or, or, or finding or spotting the Fourth Amendment issues maybe better than like a captain can because they're, they're, they're focused on you know, crime suppression and, and all this other stuff. Um, so one of the things was maybe just take it out of the captain's hands and, and, and put it in the um, IED uh, hands. Because I, in, in doing this work and like, I, I can tell like the investigations from IAD as opposed to maybe like a captain in the district, it's, it's vastly, you know, vastly different. And I think it's vastly different because, you know, those officers get more training, can spend more time with the issues as opposed to a captain who's got a lot of stuff going on or, or stuff like that. So that's what I'm hoping that some of this stuff will be cleaned up and um, yeah, and more, more stuff will be identified. Okay, you mentioned the cell phone category where officers are taking folks' uh, cell phone because they're recording an incident. Now, last I recall, it was a law that citizen had a right to start videotaping with their cell phone. So is that still a law? Okay, so those cell phone instances uh, where they're taking folks' cell phones, they're in violation, and I would think that they would know that already. You would think, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So those cases where they took people's cell phones and didn't have authority to do that and probably knew it in the first place, so what happened to those officers? Are they being held accountable? Because in this day and age, it shouldn't be any reason for an officer taking your cell phone because you're videotaping them when the law say you got a right to videotape them. So I'm trying to figure out why they're taking a the cell phone in the first place. Um, I, I will say for one of the cases, um, it was one of those cases where we disagreed and um, we went back and forth with the captain. And then I think the captain contacted somebody from the training division and then he came back and he said, okay, you're right, I, I will sustain the violation. Um, for some of the other ones, uh, because it's an audit, and I think that particular case that I'm talking about was a case that was like on the cusp, because I, so I think that was still an active case. Um, so that was a, a different one, but the case, most of the cases were already closed when I reviewing them, right? So um, there, there, there could be nothing done because the case had already been closed, but that case was like on the cusp of the, um, the, the audit, so we actually could get something done. Um, but that, that's why the recommendation was, you know, here is the law. It's a pretty substantial law. It's, it's the law of um, the, the state. It's the law of the, the circuit. Um, yeah, and, and I think even uh, I remember the training back in uh, January, the um, district attorney, one of the, the assistant district attorneys came there and he, he, he was adamant about police officers not taking people's cell phones because he said that um, a lot of times this cell phone footage is used to um, prosecute the, the different cases and, and stuff like that. Not just for officers, but for like a murder case or something like that. So people, they often take pictures of their phones. So they, the district attorney wants people to take, like, you know, record as much as you, you can because that gives them uh, greater evidence. But um, to answer your question, that's why it was included in the audit as something serious. You know, like, I mean, I saw some stuff that I, I didn't include, but some stuff like that that I thought was pretty serious, like taking someone's cell phone for recording, that's stuff that you should know. And if I'm seeing it over and over again, 
then okay, you need to train your officers, you need a policy, you, you, need, you need to uh, make a more of an emphasis on this particular issue. Thank you. Commissioner Salazar. Um, first, I just wanted to say thank you for your presentation because I found it really interesting. Um, I live in District 2, so this chart that you showed um, about the traffic stops and the tents, that was, it really stuck out to me. Um, I guess my question is when you're doing your investigations, um, the information you receive, is it specific enough to see what officers are having complaints filed against? Um, I started, so initially I did start, um, that was in one of the charts, like, okay, is, is there like an, uh, an officer or a group of officers that are getting um, uh, the majority of the, the complaints? Um, I didn't necessarily see a correlation between the um, individual officers. I did see a correlation between um, uh, certain um, police teams, like there's a gang enforcement team, there's a um, preventative, the POP team, I forget what it stands for. So there's certain teams, there's detectives, there's certain teams. So I did see the gang enforcement teams get a bit more um, uh, complaints uh, against them. And the gang enforcement teams are teams that um, I think they have a bit more discretion in police departments. They're the, the people who kind of, it's like four or, or three guys to a car and they kind of peruse the area and they, um, uh, uh, instead of like maybe going, I mean, I think they do go on calls, but they do more, um, that's what I'm looking for, they do more, they initiate more, you know? Like the, the, your average police officer gets a call and then they go to a scene, but the gang enforcement team, they were actually, you know, if they see something, they, they, would, they, could, they would go do it, you know, without someone calling, you know? Um, and they would do this under the guise of like, okay, we're the gang enforcement team. We don't want to see gangs. So the, the, the areas that had the high gang activity, they would go out to try to suppress some of the gang activity. So I saw a lot of complaints against those types of like enforcement teams, but I think the police department has disbanded the gang enforcement teams. I'm not sure. Yeah, we, 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 they, they're not disbanded. They're now called violent crime uh, reduction teams. And we did exactly what you guys talked about with the culture shift. It took a while. I was up within District 2 with the, the team you're talking about. And I, I was, I'm looking forward for you guys to see the reduction of, of not only complaints and, and what's going on there, but there was a real culture shift with, with how we're doing our policing and, and the, the way we're doing things. It's no longer going out there and just driving around and stopping red lights. So I'll leave it at that. Yeah, so I mean, that's what I, I kind of saw. And I think I, I did put it in the report that it was like, uh, I think one of the charts in the actual report was about which teams or which police teams had the most um, most uh, complaints. So the officer, I mean, I, I'll be honest with you, I thought I was gonna find like a few officers, but it was pretty broad. So no, no one really stuck out. Thank you. Thank you. Commissioner Bliss. Really appreciate, again, uh, both your willingness to be uh, to answering these questions as well as the department's uh, willingness to really answer our questions and get in the weeds with this a bit. Um, I had a couple follow-up questions based on what my fellow commissioners had brought up. Um, one being around um, the presented uh, findings uh, that were in the slides. I noticed that um, based, uh, 
uh, based on the audit report that uh, was in the staff report document, um, some of these seem to be a little bit out of order, and I'm just curious to know if, um, you know, I know that you didn't make the presentation, but are these considered like the priority findings there and or and recommendations that OPSA need, like thinks the department should focus on first, or is this just based on like what was put out there? Uh, yeah, I think this is more of a stylistic thing. Okay. Um, I didn't. I didn't. I mean. I know you. I, I might have drafted the, the the findings and stuff like that, but like how they appear in the report, um, you know, I, it's a it's a team effort. It okay. wasn't. Yeah. I just wanted to make sure. I didn't know if these were like sometimes you know you want to like uh, similar to what the auditors team did, like focusing on like the priority. Yeah, I think the the big priority for me, and, and I think I hope the one that was made number one was the not having any policy at all regarding the improper search and seizure. So I think that was number one. And then uh, to me, the pretext stop obviously uh, hit home. And uh, number three, the um, the um, the uh, uh, pat down stuff. So I think those were three that um, I, I thought were very important. But I think they're all super important. The cell phone stuff, the, I mean, I, I think they're all really important. And that's why they were included in the audit. Mm -hmm. I appreciate and I, and that. I wanted to, to okay. do the substantial ones. I didn't want to nitpick. Like, there's other stuff that I saw that um, maybe wasn't a, a huge issue. Um, but the, the 10 that um, made the audit, I wanted to make sure they were substantial enough to, to, to warrant inclusion into the audit. Gotcha. So there's additional, like, there would be additional recommendations that you might have and, or additional findings that weren't there. Is that what I heard? Um, yeah, like to Miss um, Carter's point, there, there there could have been stuff that was like, I don't like it, but is it a violation? You know, stuff like that. Okay. You know, I wanted to put the things that were actually violations that were actually substantial that I thought that um, were kind of I don't say dire, but like you should really handle these now. You know, appreciate that. Um, the other uh, follow-up questions I had were uh, uh, was around the Office of Internal Compliance, um, the department met, that the department mentioned creating. I mean, there were four initial staff that uh, the council agreed to have the police hire, and I'm really curious to know. Um, well, actually, before I ask the question of the department, I uh, would like to ask you if, um, based on the recommendations that you had. Do any of these recommend? Did any of these recommendations that OPSA um, envision need like requiring additional staff to in order to implement? I mean, I don't I, personally. I don't think so. But I mean, I don't. Um, I thought that the department did have a um, a unit that did policy work, but um, I think that's a like that's a question. Like the, I, I figure my job is to um, tell you kind of what you need, mm -hmm. and however you go about it is is out of my control. Those are more operational concerns for the police department. But my job was to you know kind of sort through the evidence and see like you need this, you kind of need this, you don't have this, you need this. So the logistics of how that works, you know, we can talk about. But as far as like them asking for more people, that's kind of it's out of my my yeah. expertise. No, I mean, it, 
it leads into my next question. I believe um, the response you gave, it reminded me that um, Dr. Watson, I believe last month uh, in September uh, during our meeting, we asked her a similar question. She, she said that no, none of these recommendations, she, she believed that, uh, required additional staff. However, I do have a question now that it's been approved uh, of the police department regarding the Office of Internal Compliance. Is there a timeline for when this office um, is due to be operational? Commissioner, as far as the timeline goes, uh, like I said earlier, we're working on it. Um, you know, to the best of our ability, we just received the position numbers for uh, the additional authorized FTEs, the two administrative analysts and the administrative technician uh, for the Office of Compliance as support staff. So uh, that's going to take a bit of a process. Um, I can't give you a timeline other than to say we're working on it. Personnel will have to uh, request from the city unfreeze for the positions, and then there's going to have to be testing and selection uh, for, these pe for these folks. So that's the process, and also, of course, the, the primary position, um, the, the chief compliance manager or whatever the working title or the actual title is going to end up being, uh, that position also has to be, um, you know, um, a selection has to be made after uh, the, the job classification is posted. So um, I don't have the expertise to tell you how long that will take. Um, all I know is that the, the chief's desire is that we get that moving, um, and the goal is to have that office, um, at least the framework and the initial folks uh, selected and, and in place, uh, you know, as soon as we can. Um, keeping in mind also that OPSA uh, requested and, and was authorized an additional, I believe it was six FTEs uh, for their office as well as, uh, you know, uh, to supplement the inspector general. And, you know, I think part of the, the, um, the, the you know, thing that the police department keeps in mind is obviously we're going to um, want to be as responsive to OPSA and to the IG's office as we can. And uh, I know that they had identified a need for additional staff in order to uh, better, uh, you know, accomplish their mission of oversight of the police department. And so I believe in response, um, you know, as part of that uh, or, you know, as a supplement to that obviously would be uh, for us to have the, the, the personnel to be able to respond to them in a timely manner and to the commission. So, um, as I mentioned earlier, all of that is in, in the works as part of the internal compliance office in the process of building it out. Bird, I fear it's worth asking. I think, like, and I've said this before, you know, one of the things I think could go a long way to really addressing community trust is just by, even if it's, like, just a, a broad estimate, just having, like, a sense of... Um, uh, a light at the end of the tunnel, like when, like when is like the period that the police department is setting? Is it like you know um, January 2024 or is it October 2026? You know, sort of thing. Like can can go a long way. But um, I appreciate you you know sharing like you know what the like you know what are the steps to getting there and also like um, what your first goal is to getting that framework and the initial selection. I don't know if it helps or not, Commissioner. But uh, you know, in answer to your question, and again, I you know I. I would hate to, you know, make promises that, that I certainly wouldn't be able to keep, but I, I, I would, I believe that the chief's vision is that we're talking hopefully in terms of months rather than, you know, like a year from now or whatever, right, if that helps. Okay. Um, so that's what our goal is anyways, those of us that are working on it. So. That is certainly better than, like, than nothing there, so I appreciate that all the same. Um, 
the other questions I had were um, related to the other teams that are under the office of the chief. Um, the office of, like, you know, there's currently the professional standards unit as well as uh, inspection audit teams, which, if I'm not mistaken, are both under the office of the chief. I'm curious to know um, how many uh, how many staff are assigned uh, to these respective units, and then um, what? How are they? Diff how are they going to be different from um, the the new Office of Internal Compliance? Right. As far as the exact numbers, that, uh, Clay, do you know approximates? But we could probably give you approximates. But um, uh, let me ask you the second part of your question first, and that is. Uh, the department is looking at reorganizing all of our uh, units that are associated with um, police reform and transparency and trust. Um, so, you know, we're looking at um, when we have this new professional staff member, this high-level direct report to the chief of police, when this person is chosen uh, to, you know, affect internal compliance and, and to make sure that we're doing the right things and that we're doing, you know, implementing best practices and that we're, you know, working collaboratively with the uh, various shareholders. Once we get that person in position, uh, then we're going to, as part of the reorganization, we're going to place a lot of these other units that are doing things like constitutional audits, like our inspection and standards team, that are doing things, uh, you know, like our, you know, force investigations, that we bring all of these folks underneath the umbrella of this Office of Compliance. Because, you know, obviously that would that would ensure that, you know, we're doing what we're supposed to do, that things don't get lost, you know, uh, because of loss of institutional knowledge or change in personnel. Um, so it, it makes the most sense based on best practices, based on what other agencies do, um, you know, to put them under the umbrella of internal compliance. And I know that uh, Lieutenant uh, Buchanan and I went down uh, to Southern California and uh, we looked at, for example, how, uh, you know, LAPD is doing things now and what LA Sheriff's hopes to do um, by, you know, I think um, Sheriff Luna just instituted Office of Constitutional Policing as a best practice, uh, as, uh, I think it was February of this year, um, or approximately around February. So they're, they're looking at, uh, you know, we're looking at kind of modeling some of the things that we're looking at doing after um, best practices nationwide, right, where they're putting in um, offices, uh, offices that are looking into or, or, or ensure that the, the police are doing uh, what's constitutional, right, the Office of Constitutional Policing. So, so um, a best practices that normally you would take a lot of these different entities within the police department that are responsible for, like, for example, military equipment auditing or, um, you know, body-worn camera auditing or, uh, you know, um, you know, policy and, and, and put that under one person so that that person has a, a, a direct responsibility and the authority of a high-level senior manager and they're also a direct report to the chief of police and can advise the chief of police on what is best practice and, you know, what, what is uh, the changes, the latest changes in the law. That way you don't have units spread out all over the department with, like, say, a sergeant in charge of one unit, a lieutenant in charge of one unit, or a captain in charge of one unit, and everybody's doing their own thing. And, like, uh, I think it was Commissioner Carter, or actually the, the IG mentioned earlier, you know, where you potentially one of the things that, that was looked at is, okay, do you have different commands, different captains in charge of different divisions, and everybody is not quite doing the same thing, right? Be because, you know, they may mean well, but they're just not doing the same thing. So to consolidate everything under one office is best practice uh, is from what we've seen. Um, so that's what we, you know, hope to do. So all those units that you mentioned, we, we hope to put them appropriately under this new, new uh, division or new office. 
heard. And will this office still be, con like, will this office be separate from the office of the chief then, like, so, like, an adjacent office? Yes, exactly. They, they, they will report directly to the chief of police, and they were the own, they'll be their own separate office. Uh, the best practices that, they, that we're looking at is that they're not a sworn, uh, you know, police officer in charge. You know, they, they, they are a professional staff member uh, whose dedicated mission is to, to make sure that we're, you know, um, you know, we have the best deliverables in terms of police reform, and, and we're doing the best practices. So that, that's the goal anyways. Okay. Um, and also, of course, that they work with everybody that has, a, has you know, um, an in interest in, in seeing that happen. So, and approximate numbers, Clay, I think we're... Yeah, I think for, for other, like just the admin services side, um, that including our IT division, like I think the CIT has folks about 23 people that fall in there that are for the investigation team, our policy, um, our transparency. Inspection and auditing and okay. things like that. Okay, gotcha. So, um, and so that's 22 people for like all the teams that are under the inspection audit team? Roughly, yes. Okay. And no, no, for under, yeah, under the professional standards and administrative services, right? Okay, gotcha. So, yeah. okay, good to know. Thank you. Thank you. Any other final um, questions? Great. Well, thank you so much, and thank you, Captain Rudy Chan and Lieutenant, although soon to be Captain. Clay Buchanan for being here. Really appreciate it. I think we had a great uh, discussion and the information that you're providing to us allows us to kind of just be better informed. Thank you. Um, with that, thank you for your patience, City Auditor. Um, it, we would love to welcome you um, and have you present. And thank you for being patient with us. Oh, one second, I have to say, um, this is a received, the item was a received and file, no vote taken. Okay, uh, good evening, commissioners. My name is Kevin Christensen. I'm a principal analyst here at the City Auditor's Office. I'm here to present an update on the audit of the Sacramento Community Police Review Commission. Um, we'd like to thank the commission for the opportunity to come before you and present this audit. Uh, the audit was first presented to the City Council on February 22nd, 2002, and uh, the findings and recommendations were all unanimous, uh, unanimously approved. Uh, we presented the report to this body on March 14th, uh, 2022, and again to the City Council's Law and Legislation Committee on October 3rd. Um, we see some new faces here, so we'll run through uh, the whole report for you guys. Um, so uh, tonight, we'll walk you through the findings and recommendations and provide a brief update on the status of their implementation. So the objectives of this audit were first to determine whether the police, the Sacramento Police Department responded to the commission's recommendations, and second, whether the structure and authority of the commission is consistent with best practices in civilian oversight of law enforcement agencies. Uh, the scope included a review of the then 110 recommendation, recommendations issued by the commission between 2018 and 2021 and the department's uh, responses to those recommendations. The methodology for the audit included a review of oversight agencies' best practices, uh, policies, and interviews. So, um, as part of the field work, we reviewed policies and procedures for 45 different civilian oversight uh, agencies throughout the United States, including Albuquerque, Seattle, and Greensboro. Um, we also relied heavily on the best practices 
from the National Association of Civilian Oversight of Law Enforcement, which we'll say NACOL for, for the rest of the presentation. Um, so for field work for this project, we found that there are currently 160 active civilian oversight entities across the country. Now, the key distinction here is that we found that no two entities are alike. Now, despite these differences, we found that the growth of the civilian oversight of law enforcement throughout the country has yielded many different structures and approaches to this. Um, these structures can be categorized into four different models or systems. So first is the review fo focus model. These provide community members with an opportunity to review misconduct complaint investigations. The second are investigation-focused models, where professionally trained investigative staff conduct investigations of allegations of misconduct. Third are monitoring and auditing-focused models. Uh, these type of agencies promote broad organizational change by addressing systematic issues, uh, by analyzing patterns and trends, reviewing policies and procedures, and making recommendations. And finally, there are hybrid agencies and hybrid systems. So in a hybrid system, you have multiple different agencies that perform different oversight and advisory roles. So these include independent investigative agencies and, and inspector generals, or monitoring agencies and a civilian board acting in an advisory capacity. So this structure, the hybrid agencies and hybrid systems, is what we have here in Sacramento. So just to provide a little context for the, for the commission, there have been several changes to the city's police oversight structure that date back to the 90s. Um, the Sacramento City Council created the Office of Public Safety Accountability in August 1999. In March 2004, the City Council established a Community Racial Profiling Commission to serve as an advisory board to the Mayor and Council regarding traffic stop, data collection, and analysis regarding racial, uh, racially biased policing. So, in uh, September 2016, Mayor Kevin Johnson appointed a three city council member subcommittee uh, with, the, with the purpose of working to increase transparency and accountability within the police department. In November 2016, the committee proposed the creation of a Sacramento Community Police Review Commission th that included a budget analyst position, a $600,000 annual budget, an independent investigator that would report to the police commission, and the, and the potential for subpoena authority. Now, uh, due to several issues that were identified about a citizen commission engaging these activities absent a vote of the electorate, that system was not implemented. In compromise, the city council approved the framework for the structure that remains in place today. So, as you know, we have OPSA, which has the authority to conduct investigations related to citizen complaints, track and monitor complaint cases, and review completed investigations, advising on any deficiencies. We have the police commission, which is you guys here, which reviews policies and procedures in an advisory capacity. And then we have, um, subsequently, the office uh, created subsequently was the Office of Inspector General with independence and authority to investigate officer-involved shootings. So all of these agencies together function together to provide a broad oversight structure of the, of the police department. So the report outlines the powers and duties of the commission specifically, which were provided through the city code. The first part of the commission's responsibility is making recommendations regarding police policy, procedures and best practices. So this includes community relations, hiring and training best practices. The commission was also charged with reviewing quarterly reports prepared by OPSA 
that look at the number, kind, and status of all citizen complaints filed against uh, SPD with the purpose of potentially uh, identifying potential patterns of misconduct. And finally, the commission was tasked with at least annually reporting and making recommendations to the mayor and council regarding activities of the commissions and the department's efforts to strengthen bias-free policing and community police relations. Now, we wanna note that after the issuance of this report, there have been a number of legislative changes designed to streamline the operations of the city's 25 uh, boards, commissions, and committees. One change relevant to this discussion is a requirement that city boards and commissions propose a work plan for the coming year. Now we'll go to the findings. So first, we found that there was a lack of clarity in defined roles and responsibilities in the city code that created the police commission, which has led to, which has led to confusion and frustration in the relationship between the police department and the commission. This finding covers opportunities to improve the city code language that, that establishes a commission. We found that the city code can more comprehensively define the authorities of the commission and stakeholder agencies, including the police department and OPSA. In other words, kind of define how these agencies were gonna work together in real time. In the report, we noted three examples of how these, agent, how these issues have played out to cause the frustration and confusion. So first with staffing. The commission is currently provided administrative support for staging meetings. The city code states that OPSA is to provide staff support but provided no definition of what staff support entails and no authority to direct or request the staffing support. So second, the, the second issue we found was access to information. So the city code is silent on the breadth and extent of information that the commission is entitled, through, entitled to through its request to the city and the police department. Also it's silent on a process to, to resolve disputes between the commission and the department on, in, on information that has been requested. Third, the code lacks specificity on the, commissioners, on the commission's duty to review the aggregated citizen complaint data that's provided by OPSA. So these are some of the issues that have result, has resulted in confusion and frustration. Um, so the first recommendation to deal with this finding is that the council should provide more clarity on the roles, purpose, and mission and authorities of the commission and memorialize the stuff in the city code. So we believe that better defining some of these roles and responsibilities and establishing clear lines of communication could help alleviate some of the confusion and frustration and increase the overall effectiveness of the oversight system. Um, in terms of status of this implementation, the city's law and legislation committee discussed this issue on October 3rd. At the meeting, there was discussion about holding a joint workshop between the city council and the commission to discuss some of these issues. So this leads us to our second finding. So in the second finding, we found that the commission requires resources and investment from the city to more effectively achieve its objectives. This finding focused more closely on the resources needed by the commission to fulfill its broad purposes, mission, and duties. The section of the report includes seven sub-findings and makes several re recommendations. So for the sub-findings, We've, we found that the city does not provide sufficient staffing support for the commission, that the code does not require commissioners to complete training, that the code does not provide sufficient tools for the commission to allow effective communication with the public and stakeholders. In other words, to conduct more efficient outreach or more effective outreach. Um, the commission, we found that the commission does not issue annual reports that reflect the agency's work that the commission does not establish goals or identify measures to evaluate its performance, in other words, key performance indicators, and finally, that the commission's access to information should be more clearly defined. 
So here we made several recommendations, including that the, that the council should determine the commission's staffing needs and the responsibilities of staff. We recommended that the council should determine the level of access of information that the commission needs to perform those broad, those broad duties and authorities that we mentioned earlier. We recommended that the commission have required training established. And finally, that the commission be provided additional tools to enhance public engagement to conduct more robust outreach in, in the community. Now, in terms of an update, for the staffing, for the staffing um, where are we now? So OPSA no longer provides administrative or functional support to the commission. Um, administrative staffing is now provided by the city clerk's office, and the commission at this point is receiving, if any, as you all know, any functional staff support from the city. So as stated earlier, the council's long legislative committee um, requested that there be a workshop to kind of work through some of these issues to provide a more robust discussion of what your needs are. Um, in terms of implementation updates for the remainder of the for the remainder of recommendations to this finding, we found that related to training, as the police department currently has a community advancement academy that the police department has forwarded to the commission. Um, SPD has offered to tailor a curriculum specifically for the commission based on this course, shorten it if needed, um, it long, it, uh, make it longer if needed, or focus on certain issues. Our understanding is that these discussions are, these discussions are ongoing. In addressing recommendation seven related to annual reports, the city council adopted new rules of procedure in November 22 that require each advisory body to provide an annual report to the, to the personnel and public employees committee and the staffing is being worked out on how that will be implemented. Now, to the third finding. Uh, finding three focuses on some of, the, some of the gaps that we identified in the recommendation and follow-up process. Now, what we're talking about here are the recommendations that the commission issues to the city and kind of what happens with them after, after you guys um, approve them. So, specifically, um, we found that the city code does not require commission recommendations to include specific justification, information, or reasoning. Um, next, we found that uh, the police department is not required to provide a formal response to the commission recommendations. We found that the city code does not require the city council to discuss, vote to, uh, to discuss and vote or to approve or reject the commission recommendations. And finally, the commission and the police department have not formalized the process to track whether these recommendations have been implemented. So in terms of field work for the finding, we found that during our review period, the commission had a total of 110 recommendations and less than half of these had been responded to in writing by the police department. This was a source of great frustration for the commissioners that, that we interviewed. And as you know, the number of recommendations has increased since the issuance of this report. Again, the written responses are not are still not required by the city code. Next, uh, we focus some of our fieldwork efforts on processes for making recommendations. Um, in our review of other jurisdictions, we found that oversight agencies were, were required to include specific information in their recommendations. This included policy reasoning for the change, the discussion of legal needs for a change, and information about potential implementation. So on the slide here, you have an example from the Community Policing Council from the city of Albuquerque. This is kind of one of the better formats that we saw 
that required the recommendation, some reasoning behind why the commission wanted the recommendation in place, and a place for the police department to respond in, in kind to the, uh, the recommendation and the reasoning. So the goal here, of course, is to facilitate a dialogue between the, the commission and the police. If there is some kind of exchange of ideas and rationale, the theory is that there would be a more communication about whether the recommendation can move forward. And second is to provide the council with sufficient information to make an informed decision on whether or not to accept or reject the recommendation. So we also conducted field work on different methods for tracking the commission recommendations once they're approved by the commission. So we found that other police oversight and accountability agencies have designed recommendation tracking processes and require that recommendations be tracked and reported on publicly. We found that jurisdictions have implemented different methods for tracking recommendations that vary in levels and, and complexity. So some commissions use Excel spreadsheets. Other commissions, such as the Seattle Community Police Commission, as you can see from the screen here, um, include information on the recommendation, what the law enforcement agency's response was, whether or not the recommendation has been implemented, and aggregated data on the total number of recommendations that have been approved and have been rejected. Um, so this and these kind of tools, we believe, uh, help inform the public about the status of the recommendations and how successful the commission is. is. Um, so in order to better facilitate the recommendation follow-up process, we made recommendations to the council which focus on establishing a format for commission recommendations and determining whether the department should be, whether the police department should provide written responses for the recommendations. So in terms of an update here, uh, pertaining to an agreed upon format for commission recommendations and department responses, we found that these have been partially implemented. Um, as the police department has created a recommendation submission form that was approved by the city clerk, and according to the city's liaison to the commission, the commission has also approved the form. So the form requires the commission to state what the rec recommendation is, include the rationale for the recommendation, including some research as to the reasoning, a space for the police department to respond, and a space for whether the police department to state whether it agrees, partially disagrees, or, or fully disagrees with the recommendation. So our understanding is that the police department is currently converting all of the previous recommendations into this format. So now, in order to better, better facilitate the recommendation and follow-up process, we made several recommendations to the council. So our recommendations focused on determining whether the council should vote on the commission's recommendations once they're approved, uh, determining whether the council should track and disclose the implementation of, re of supported recommenda recommendations, and determine whether the city should provide resources to make recommendations and responses publicly available in a transparent and timely manner. Now, in terms of follow-up, for recommendation 14 related to the city council requirement to vote on recommendations, we haven't seen any progress made on this one. Now, for recommendations 15 and 16 related to tracking, reporting, and providing resources for making the recommendations publicly available, we understand that the police department and the commission have been in conversations about um, how to implement these findings most effectively. We understand that there is a rudimentary tracking system that's being developed, and that the system, but that the system has not been finalized or approved by both parties. So additionally, we found that no funding for an outward-facing recommendation tracking system has been identified. So um, that concludes 
our presentation and I'm available for any questions should you have any. Thank you so much for the presentation. Any questions from, oh first, actually, any questions from members of the public wishing to speak on this item? Thank you, Chair. I have no uh, speaker slips on this item. Any questions from other commissioners? Questions, comments on this item? Commissioner Carter. This is supposed to be an update. So unless I miss something, the update is that it took four years for the city council to decide that we need a form to put the recommendations in. So I'm trying to figure out where is the progress. So OPSA is not in the loop anymore. They don't run interference. We still don't have any staff. The city clerk is now functioning as OPSA. Um, in my personal opinion, I can't speak for the rest of the people, but since I've been here from the beginning, that's not working out too good. Um, so we have a city clerk. We now have to do the work plan and run everything through PPE. Um, and I really don't know what that is accomplishing. It's more like a roadblock, but that's the new progress. Um, and we still have 100 and so whatever recommendations still in the backlog that's yet to be proved, denied, et cetera. And the city council still are not voting on anything. Although I understand we are advisory and they don't have to vote because we can only be just sitting up here giving advice. Um, so, and they've yet to decide whether they want to actually vote on anything, but after all this time on October 3rd, law and legislation has suggested, or somebody has suggested that the city council meet with us and discuss all this. So, is, did I sum that up right? I think that's a pretty succinct recitation of the, um, the progress so far. Um, I would add that our understanding is that there have been discussions between different city departments, including the mayor's office, pertaining specifically to the staffing issue. Um, I think one of the issues that was raised during the law and legislation committee is that there is an interest in providing more staff support to this commission. The issue now is what is the most appropriate place within the city bureaucracy to be able to place that position to maintain the, the independence that, that the position would need in order to facilitate discussions between the commission and the police department, which sometimes can be adversarial. Um, and what exactly those roles would be. And I think that was part of the impetus in trying to put together a workshop to have a more robust discussion about the exact kinds of staff support that this commission needs and where from the city council's perspective, 
where in the city that position would best reside. So is the workshop, is that the, the focus of the workshop is to discuss the staffing? What about those 115 recommendations that they're not doing anything with? I'm, I don't, I'm not sure that the, that the purpose of the workshop is going to be limited to a discussion of staffing. Um, my understanding from the discussion at the Law and Legislation Committee was that the purpose of that was to provide a forum to discuss not only these recommendations, but, but the implementation of the recommendations and the process in which those recommendations that this commission has made would be raised, potentially docketed, discussed, and potentially voted on by the city council. So one, one update on that, and just so to kind of provide context on what is going on. So Commissioner Bliss actually attended the meeting in person. Um, I was not able to be there, I was traveling for work, but we did draft and submitted a letter to council. And I think we can just start discussing item number five, given that it's all kind of related. Um, Commissioner, if you wouldn't mind kind of reading the letter that was sent. Sure thing, Chair. So um, this is the copy of the letter that I shared into the public record um, last Tuesday. Dear council members, as the chair and vice chair of the Sacramento Community Police Review Commission, we write the su to support the city auditor's recent findings and ask that the Law and Legislation Committee make appropriate recommendations to city council to ensure SCPRC has a clear outline of its rules and duties, uh, the investment of resources it needs to carry them out, and a clear pathway for its recommendations to be heard. Code section 2.110 specifies that the SCPRC was created for the following purposes, providing community participation in reviewing and recommending police department policies, practices, and procedures, and to providing the implementation, evaluation, sustainability of city policing initiatives and programs. However, this SCPRC has long lacked the adequate resources, including dedicated staff, to carry out these duties. For example, at, re at three recent public forums conducted to gather input about the police department's use of military equipment, community members complained about inadequate notice surrounding the events, criticized the lack of resources to educate and explain policy considerations in layperson's terms, and expressed mistrust that their participation and input would be seriously taken into account by the city. Each of these frustrations are understandable, but impossible to meaningfully address without a budget and a staff position for SCPRC to carry out its mission. The city auditor found almost two years ago that an absence of clear roles and responsibilities had led to confusion, frustration, and lack of agreement between the SCPRC, the Sacramento Police Department, and the Office of Public Safety Accountability. In response to the November 2021 audit, the SCPRC issued 12 recommendations almost three years ago advising the city council to amend city code to clarify its role, invest in staff support, and strengthen the recommendation process. Last year, when the city made changes to Chapter 2.40.210, governing boards and commissions, one of the recommendations SCPRC put forward to create standardized process uh, provided the following draft language. Whenever a board, committee, or commission submits policy recommendations to the city council, these recommendations shall be agendized first by, for consideration by either the budget committee and or the law and legislation committee within 90 days of submission. The board, committee, or commission shall be invited to send a representative to present the recommendations. Unfortunately, these changes were not made. 
Confusion and frustration have only grown in the time since while nothing material has shifted. There remain 146 out of 147 recommendations produced by the SCPRC since 2018, and a clear outline process on how to bring these recommendations forward to City Council has yet to be developed or explained to the SCPRC. This status quo severely hinders SCPRC's effectiveness and erodes the community's trust in both the SPD and the City Council. In proposing the implementation of the auditor's recommendations, the Law and Legislation Committee has an opportunity to strengthen the effectiveness of the SEPRC and increase it, uh, public confidence in our city's governance. We urge you, as its chair and vice chair, to undertake this challenge in mutual service to our Sacramento community. And, Commissioner, can you kind of, kind of give a quick summary of the discussion that happened? Because that is what actually led to the letter that is item five that we're going to go ahead and take an um, actual vote on. Right, so a lot of the discussion, like, you know, was, like, was raised by uh, council members uh, Valenzuela, Kaplan, and Jennings, um, and Guerra, um, that, you know, that there, do, like, you know, there has been uh, council direction when it comes to bringing this back uh, with staffing recommendation. Um, some council members expressed uh, wanting to see consistency across all boards and not treating the SEPRC differently, while others found that, uh, you know, there are recommendations and direction from, uh, from council that were brought up that uh, still have yet to be addressed by council, namely the, um, the batch of 2020 recommendations that were brought up. Um, along with that letter, we had shared um, just a comparison chart between the audits, the auditor's recommendations, and uh, the Police Review Commission's recommendations uh, from 2020 and how they corroborate uh, and support one another. Um, and uh, it was brought up by Councilmember Jennings that um, with the audit's findings um, and the lack of staffing, like, you know, catching the council's attention, um, it was proposed that the council actually hosts a joint workshop between the city council and the police review commission uh, where we can actually hammer out a lot of these uh, differences. And I have the letter here I can read into the record if, if that's helpful. One second, I just wanna make sure that we close this item out and then we can kind of yeah. vote on uh, number item number five. But before we move forward, because and if you wouldn't mind staying up here given it's all kind of interrelated. Thank you. Um, any questions on the audit itself from November 2021 and kind of the update? Any questions, comments from other commissioners? Okay. Then that means with, um, oh, Commissioner Carter, is that still, do you have your hand up on this item? Uh, no. Okay. Then moving on, Commissioner Bliss. Um, just to appreciate a lot of the, uh, the findings that were brought in here, I think um, one of the things I also named is that uh, based on the conversation from the council, majority uh, seem to agree that uh, the commission does need the staffing to do this work. So I think that's one of the, the key points of agreement uh, that's there. And uh, council member Balenzuela did uh, uh, suggest additional recommendations she would like to see uh, brought before council, which I believe uh, involved you know, requiring uh, a police, a police officer liaison uh, from the department to be present at all meetings, um, as well as you know requiring more regular meetings between um, uh, the chief of police and the uh, and their representative to meet with the commission more often. Um, there are a couple more that I think were listed in there, but um, they're escaping me at this time. Great, thank you, um, Commissioner Ventos or no, Commissioner Carter. 
just frustrated in the update. It's not your fault. The update is the update. Um, but the reality is nothing's been, nothing really significant has been done since the audit came out. Um, so, I mean, that's, that's the bottom line. They haven't done anything. They haven't ruled on anything. And now they want to have this meeting. It is not just about staffing. The issue is they're not acknowledging the recommendations. They, they need to move on them. And it seems that what I'm hearing or the alleged reason, reading in between the lines why we don't have any answers is because some form. Well, nobody said in the beginning that you wanted a white paper. And if you needed a white paper, you should have spoke up and said you needed a white paper and you wanted the recommendations in this format. But now we're all down the road three years into this and, you know, one of the council members decided that they couldn't figure out what was on the table and what was being asked because we didn't have a form. So now there's this big push to put everything in this format and now SAC PD is taking the time to go through all the 100 and so and so recommendations and put them in this format. So basically we still we still don't have any answers. We're just tripping over our feet. And now we're putting it all in the format. And so unless they're going to really talk about voting on some of these issues, it's more than just staffing. That's my two cents. But, I, you know, I'm not beating you up. I can't kill the messenger. You're here to give us an update. You gave us the update. Thank you for it. But, the, you know, the buck just stops with the city council. All right, well, uh, if I may, I think part of the logic behind the form is that eventually the goal is to have each one of those posted to the commission's website. So there is a repository for members of the public to go to if they want to either check the status of a particular recommendation or see the body of work as for the commission as a whole. And I think that is, um, for us, the intent of that recommendation was if you kind of think about it sequentially, these things build on one another. If you have the recommendation form filled out and then you build the recommendation tracking system, all of that stuff kind of follows along with one, with one another. And um, I, I certainly um, hear the frustration, but for us, I think we believe that having that form and agreed upon form and working towards that was still um, somewhat of a, somewhat of a, I understand, but the issue on the website, that's been a, a thorn also. We've been asking for a website since day one. Right. So, always a day late and a dollar short. You know? So now we want to create the form because we need to put it on the website. We should have had a website a long time ago. Long time ago. They just, the, the city council needs to decide what they want to do. 
you know, and how transparent and forthright and all that other stuff people be preaching when they had a, uh, when there's chaos in the streets and all that. Um, they got to decide, do they, you know, what type of commission do you want? You can't put people in place to be in commission and then don't give them no resources, don't give them no website. Um, everybody just sitting here spinning their wheels and taking up all their times. And every time you turn around, we meet with SAC PD. Uh, it's just a vicious circle. It's a vicious circle. And it's been going on for four years. And I want to know when are we going to have some real progress and when is the city council going to take a vested interest and really do something? And as a side note, we don't have four, uh, at least four or five audits, investigations, consultants over the years. We keep researching and hiring a consultant and spending $100,000 here and all this money to come with the same findings. So my question is, when is the city council going to do something? We all know they're stopping black and brown people more than everybody else. When are you going to do something? That's the bottom line. That's the, that's the change people looking for. That's the oversight. So until the city council get real about that and stop sweeping it under the rug, because the same question been coming up for 20 years, at least 17, 17 years. And I'm not beating you up, but now they want to meet, but... I just want to see real progress. I don't want to have a meeting and they talk about staffing and we waiting another two years for them to really get to the nitty gritty and vote on some of these issues. By then it'll be a whole new council and the new people can say, well, I wasn't here then. You know, everybody can pass the buck and find a reason to distance themselves and still we're we not getting a change. We want change. We want progress. And I don't have nothing against the police department. I don't have nothing against the police department. The issue is the city council. You want oversight, then make it happen. That's the bottom line. If you want real oversight, they got to make it happen. So, okay. Thank you. It's not against you. We just are, are a tad frustrated. Yeah. But Commissioner Bliss. Yep. I heard uh, nothing but facts uh, from Commissioner Carter. Uh, bringing this up I mean yeah this has been a long overdue conversation I really appreciate the city auditor's office following up with us uh, with like with these updates and you all have honestly like the recommendations have for like from in my eyes really like supported uh, the previous recommendations and things that we have been expressing for so many years um, and really I mean Commissioner Carter, Carter said it best, like this isn't on you, this isn't on um, the assistant city manager or even our police liaisons that we've been meeting with. It really is up to the city council. But one thing I wanted to, like, to just name too in the public record, like the forms that we're talking about, which I do agree are an important first step to publishing our recommendations more regularly. Um, the form that we currently agree upon is the, four, like, is I believe the third iteration of forms that the commission has put out and offered to the police department um, since we began issuing recommendations. And um, even still, we're, we're still running into issues, which I've talked with um, 
uh, the assistant city manager and um, the PSU liaison uh, about, one of, one's most recently being that the recommendations that we have received a response, right now being the 2020 or the 2018 uh, recommendations that were put out, and um, some of the previous iteration of the MEU recommendations. Um, when we initially received that, I realized, you know, there was a time crunch because we were trying to get, like, based on this, this uh, the police department's timeline um, that was followed by, the, based on the city attorney's office interpretation of AB 41, required, like, a rush response. And one of the things I noticed is that even with the form that, um, that we agreed upon now, the recommendation process it, it being so ambiguous, we're still not, like, there still seems to be a breakdown within the communication of like how the police department gets these recommendations because I noticed the MEU recommendations uh, that are currently posted on the city's website, that is not the official uh, language that the commission approved back in March 2023. It is, an, like, it is the initial draft of recommendations we had submitted to the City Council's Law and Legislation Committee back in May 2022. Now, I understand that, um, I believe that uh, we have informed the departments and the city manager's office that this is like, you know, of this um, discrepancy and we're hoping that a recommendation on the full recommend, 13 recommendations that have been put out will be forthcoming soon. Um, but I, I really just w wanted to ask Based on your conversations with the like with the city council, and I assume this also includes the city manager's office, some of the like some of the holdup also lie based on like the updates to um, city code around chapter two point four zero um, with the city manager agendizing this. Because I'm curious to know like are our recommendations really like exclusively dependent upon city council requesting they be agendized, or is it also dependent upon whether the city manager agendizes them? If, that, if that's a question that can be answered. So for our recommendation follow-up process, what usually occurs is that our system communicates with the recipient of the recommendation to solicit uh, a response in regards to their understanding of the implementation progress. We take that information and if necessary, we do some additional testing to confirm whether or not that has actually achieved the uh, desired change. And so it really comes down to who is the responsible party on the recommendation and what information is communicated to us um, to determine whether or not uh, there has been progress on a particular recommendation. Uh, as we do with any report that we issue, we continue to uh, conduct this process uh, basically indefinitely uh, until either the recommendation is implemented or the recommendation is dropped as a result of circumstances that change that uh, render the particular recommendation uh, no longer valid. And so that's, that's the process that we go through. So just following up on that, does that mean, do you have a certain cadence, like every six months, every year, do you review until you're close at the audits? Yeah, uh, so we do the report every six months and every six months there is uh, an update that goes to uh, the Budget and Audit Committee and ultimately to the Mayor and City Council that informs uh, the implementation status of all outstanding recommendations. If a recommendation is implemented, then that recommendation would no longer be included in subsequent uh, recommendation follow-up reports. Thank you. Okay, 
see no other questions or comments. Commissioner, Commissioner. Thank you. Uh, sorry. <laughs> uh, first, I, I wanted to kind of separate the issues so, so you don't get lost in the sauce. You know, firstly, I, I just want to say thank you very much for doing the audit, you know, on it. It reflects and correlates with what we are, our lived experiences, you know, on it. So that's on the one hand, commend you, thank you, and it's always a difficult role being an internal auditor because you're sometimes giving criticism to the powers that be, you know, on it. So that's on the one hand. On the other hand, you know, echoing with uh, Ken and, and Commissioner Carter uh, have, have said, you know, the frustration coming from the commission has to, be, has to do with the implementation of actions uh, on it. There's, there's not a lot of mystery to what's been looked at and what's been studied and what's been documented, not only by this commission, but by DOJ, you know, and other entities as well. So we all need to kind of, we, and, and by we, I'm saying not just the commission, the council uh, needs, needs to kind of like just get off the dime. Let's stop trying to justify, mystify, or delay dealing with what is a complex family issue, you know, on it. We got to get it agendized and on, and on, a, on a timeline that we can commit to, you know. So as, as a commissioner sitting here and having done a whole heap of, <laughs> of audits and reviews over my career, you know, on it, what we're, what we're looking for is for the city, uh, you know, to take, take this on and give us rel good relative timelines, as we discussed with the uh, uh, SPD representatives earlier. I don't at this at this I don't care if you tell me that you're coming back in uh, you know the first quarter of the year you know something that we're shooting at the surest way of not hitting the target is not to have one you know on it so if we can put some general at least generalized if not specific timelines mm. on when things are going to happen uh, both in terms of the SPD implementation, but also with the city council. You know, we now have this accepted recommendation of a workshop. Nobody's discussed what is a, when's that likely to happen? It ain't going to be at Thanksgiving, you know, <laughs> you know, or Christmas is coming and New Year's is following on its heels, you know. So when is it? What do we, what do we plan around so that both the city and this commission can make it as fulsome an opportunity as possible. It takes a little pre-work to kind of dimensionalize out exactly what you want to talk about, exactly what you want to get out of it, you know, on it for both sides, you know, on it. But again, if we don't have a target of February 1st, you know, to pick something out of the air, you know, you don't know what you're working against in order to get there, you know, on it. And that needs to happen. And, you know, in, in terms of progress, you know, uh, for me, it's, it's progress that the, that the at least the law and ledge and individual city council members that I know I and others on this commission have had conversation with are finally kind of waking up, if you will, you know, and saying that we got to do something. You know, we need to do something on staffing to make it real. We need to we need to do something on resource sources overall, you know, on it. And, uh, you know, we we need to start putting some times and dates to it. That that's progress that apparently has not happened over the course of the last four years, you know, on it. And I, and I appreciate the learning curve, you know. I think it was with good, good intentions that, that 
the city reacted to what was a volatile situation, you know, on it, whether it's whether it between, you know, Stefan Clark and or the Floyd, you know, and all the rest. That's great that you know that you needed to have a reaction. Now that the flash is gone, you know, on it, what are we doing about the root causes of the fire? That's the challenge, you know, on it. And the concerns from a community point of view have never gone away. Sometimes they, they wane high, higher than other times. But what, what's absolutely clear is that the embers of what caused the, the conflagration still exist. And when we had the three public hearing workshops on it, we heard it loud and clear as a part of the, this commission, and we've reported it back out. So my wish uh, as one of the commissioners here is, A, not to be wasting my time, you know, on it, B, you know, to be actually a part of addressing the legitimate concerns of the citizenry of this city and the needs of, of the city in getting through this, you know, and again, like I said, it's a it's a been a learning curve for everyone, you know. When you when you get into these kinds of things, you don't even in the beginning realize what you need systematically put into place. What are the forms? What is the data draws? You know, and 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 even the staffing level. You know, you discover that as you the more that you get into the details on it. But those are now all known quantities, you know adequately reported several times from the audit report from this commission and from other sources so now it's the, it's the time of get get off the seat and let's put some deadlines around this that's that's my plea back to to the city manager you know uh, on it and the like it is what we owe the citizenry of this city a response and, and a preventative set of actions to avoid the, the things that have given rise to the concerns yeah. Thank you. Very well put. And closing out item four, that's a perfect segue for number five. So number four is file and receive, no need to vote. And with that, um, I think you just kind of summarized exactly what the commission is would like to see. Um, just really quickly want to highlight. So based on the conversation that happened during the October 3rd meeting, there was a motion and I think there was an agreement um, for this letter to come to us and for us to actually vote on it. And the letter basically is saying the council wants to acknowledge that they have not done anything on the audit, which came out November 2021. Um, and they are asking for collaboration on addressing the city auditor's uh, recommendations and really working with the commission. Um, quote, if you agree to this workshop, our offices will work with your chair and vice chair to identify a facilitator, time, location and the agenda format for the workshop. So that is item number five. And I think um, just to echo what everything that um, Commissioner Wayne Johnson said, I think we need to cl have clear outlines and goals in order for us to be successful. Um, and with that, I have Commissioner Bliss and Commissioner Wendrostro. Thank you, Jared. The letter that uh, we received, honestly, is a, a promising first step towards, like, hopefully clearing not just the staffing issue, but, like, for the entire recommendation and review process is what I'm aiming for. I think um, it's, it's long overdue. And that last line that um, the chair just read, I think, is the most consequential because they're essentially 
um, willing to work with us to set the agenda for how we want to like engage in this conversation, which um, is really promising. So similar to what Commissioner uh, Wayne Johnson said, I think like it's on us to really identify like what are the goals and outcomes that you want to get from this meeting, um, and what are the processes like that we see for identifying and getting through these, uh, you know, um, to meet these recommendations, to implement what the city auditor has said and what we have long been asking for the, uh, for the council to do when it comes to reviewing and ultimately voting on our recommendations. Um, one of the things that, uh, I, uh, that has come up um, in our conversation with uh, when we were meeting as the, the implementation ad hoc uh, over the last year and talking about the, um, the backlog of recommendations um, that this uh, audit um, uh, mentions, most of, most of them which it mentioned was like a draft recommendation uh, and evaluation process um, where you know, we're setting the cadence for um, when the commission approves and sends recommendations to the department, um, when the department reviews and submits written responses to the commission, and then how we um, meet and discuss through any potential differences or conflicts when it comes to those responses, and then ultimately present those to council. Um, definitely have some like some ideas within that, but I think um, I well, I'm just going to say outright like yes, absolutely, 100% that we should agree to this, um, and would invite commissioners uh, here to really um, name uh, either here or um, uh, in between our this meeting and our November meeting what goals and outcomes they want to see with this joint workshop. Because ideal, like, as it was discussed during the Law and Legislation commission, uh, Committee, this would be a conversation with all the, like, with the full commission and our appointing council members. So this is really our opportunity to do that. Yeah. Yep, we did. And I... Yeah, I, I did have one question. But before we move on, I'm sorry. I apologize. We do have a, a public commenter on this item. Oh, pardon sure me. Go ahead. <laughs> Thank you, Chair. Uh, I have one member of the public to speak on this item. Uh, Truth. Truth Bay. It's been a long evening, but appreciate it. Okay, so this is for request to have a town hall meeting. Um, right now, uh, Ms. Carter resonated a lot of what the community has been, especially the black and brown community, um, has been feeling for a long time. Maria Laura, you gotta do something. Howard Chan has to do something. You guys can't sit here and run the finances of the city and give $228 million to the police force and we don't have a basic uh, commission meeting that's funded. What's happening with the American Rescue Plan funds? The city of Sacramento received $1.3 million. The county of Sacramento received quite a bit as well. What happened to it? 
We have plenty of funding. We could print more. We give a lot to Ukraine, so don't say we don't have funding. We have a lot of non-black agencies that's being funded six figures in their support in their programs, but there always seems to be an issue when it comes to policing, when it comes to equity, when it comes to DEI. So I would like to see in December a town hall meeting, your black churches, your churches to wake up and stand because they're supposed to fix what the government doesn't do. And it seems to intertwine. I don't know the difference. You understand? So that tide money, put it into youth services, safe spaces, equity, um, domestic violence, homelessness, just the basic stuff that the city of Sacramento is dragging their feet on. Now, for the encounter that I received from Matthew McPhail, I'm serious. He has, he has very few hours to return my ID. I don't know what was thinking in his mind. He saw a black face. He said, hey, let me do my slave catcher's role and, and confiscate her ID. I have no ID, folks. I'm not a crackhead, so I don't know why that seems to be okay in the city of Sacramento for black professionals to have their IDs confiscated, but that's a different story. We need to have a town hall meeting. We will bring the constituents. We will bring the people. Either have it here, have it at the city locations. There are plenty of city-owned properties, right, Laura and Chan, that you still haven't reported back to us yet since August. So we still, there's plenty of places to have it. Shouldn't have any funding issues in having this town hall, but we need to have the voices heard. We need to have a bridge between the community, the issues. We don't want to hear another year Ms. Carter stating what, what the hell's going on. It's four years now. Care about something or else somebody's going to jail. I'm telling you right now, you don't understand what's happening behind the scenes. You know, Tian Ho did a very good thing and sued the hell out of the city for, for willful neglect. Do you think Policing is any different than homelessness? No. We can't have the same people misappropriating funding. So let's have a town hall in December. You have plenty of time to get back to the public on doing so. We look forward to hearing the time and date, and we will be there. Thank you so much. Thank you for your comments. Uh, Chair, I have no more speakers. Great. Thank you. Going to Commissioner Buenrostro. Well, I, in a way, I think I might have the benefit of being newer to the commission. Um, I'm still feeling the frustration, but maybe not as much as the commissioners that have been here longer than I have. Um, I, I do want to echo a few comments that um, Vice Chair Bliss said. And when, 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 I, when I was first reacting to the letter, my first reaction was to vote no on it, and, and mainly because of the fear that it was another big meeting with all of the city council, all of the commissioners, where we would discuss the same issues that have been brought up two years ago that should have been voted on by the city council two years ago, uh, like has been said previously, and that after that meeting, my concern is what happens. This is just that we have another discussion and then we wait for action, and how long does that action take? Uh, but I, I do trust the chair and vice chair that they'll set a, a good agenda. Um, I would like to add uh, my strong opinion, and I think it's reflected by other commissioners, that um, out of this meeting, we need to have a clear timeline for when the city council will take actions towards the recommendations. Uh, whether they approve them or not, that's fine, but we need to have a clear timeline uh, with goals for when action will be taken at the city council level, not just that we agree on what the recommendations are gonna look like, that we agree on, on principles, 
but let's have agreement on what the next concrete steps are going to be on so that the public and the commission knows when is the city council going to actually take action on some of these items. Uh, if that comes out of this meeting, then I think it's going to be a great meeting. It's going to produce a good outcome. Uh, but that's that's my only concern and my only ask for, for this meeting. Well, there's a lot of asks for this meeting, but um, I, think, I think at the very least that very concrete uh, information or agreement uh, would be very, very helpful. Thank you. I'm hearing a theme here. Um, Commissioner Bliss? Yep, I will 100% uh, support that. Uh, that's, I think, the bare minimum to come out of this, uh, this workshop. The other being what I had suggested earlier of a, uh, a formal process for the recommendations to go through. Like step by step, even if the language isn't solidified, we're very clear about what the steps are when it comes to those recommendations um, and the, the pathways in which they, they travel between to, like, to make it to the final destination. I mean, we already have language recommend, like recommended, which um, you know we included um, in the letter that we sent to council last year, that and is supported by um, at least six other uh, city uh, commissions, boards, and committees, um, uh, which was the language that was included in our letter to law and legislation. Um, so I, I'm prepared to also like include that if if other commissioners um, uh, are supportive of that language. The question I wanted to ask of uh, the city auditor's office was um, if, because uh, one of the things I would like to see is actually um, if the city auditor could either participate as sort of the facilitator based on the audit recommendations or nope, okay, I'm seeing not at all. So that's fair. Um, yeah, I guess just making like making sure the full council is up to speed on like the the current process of the recommendations. Maybe it maybe that looks like um, a similar overview of what you just gave us at the lead up to that. But I just want to make sure that we're like gro we're grounding within that and how that looks. I'm completely open to. Yeah, uh, Jorge the city auditor. Um, not that we don't want to operate as facilitators. You know, we, we would love to help, you know, both the commission and the council make progress on uh, this stuff. But we do have to remain impartial, uh, independent, uh, and objective. Uh, we've made the findings and recommendations, presented them publicly, and council has taken action on our, on our report. Our role uh, going forward, as I mentioned before, is to follow up on these recommendations and provide, you know, uh, uh, those updates on a going forward basis to inform the mayor and council and the public in regards to how those are implemented. Those recommendation follow-up reports are available on our website and are presented to uh, both budget and audit and to the uh, city council. If those resources would be helpful to facilitate those discussions and obviously you can uh, ask us questions before the meeting if you have a particular question regarding the implementation status of a uh, recommendation that you're uh, interested in. Uh, but uh, it would raise some concerns, at least from my perspective, in regards to you know not appearing uh, impartial in having uh, a role as a facilitator. Completely fair, and I completely understand and appreciate your honesty within that. Um, the other thing I was thinking with uh, in terms of like desired outcomes is just having a clear, um, what's the word, uh, or a clear understanding of, uh, of 
where things sit with it, uh, I guess, with the 146 recommendations and just making sure that, like, we have, like as part of that timeline for city council action, we're also including, you know, um, when we expect responses to be uh, to be brought up to it. I mean, the council could approve these, rec like, could take up these recommendations at any point in time, from my understanding. It's really just a matter of, like, what, like, what's the process for doing that? And it just seems like we're just, talk like, as other commissioners have pointed out, we're just kind of tossing the hot potato back and forth, um, waiting for somebody to, um, uh, with, with actual authority to take action, which we currently do not have. Um, so I'm kind of thinking with uh, when it comes to where we're at, I think like uh, I, I have a, an idea in mind of like, you know, how the agenda takes place, which includes like an overview of like the commission's history, both from like um, a, an accounting of the most recent audits and studies from the department that the commission has like direct, been, either been directly involved with or has included, like, you know, has addressed within its recommendations, which by my count, there are now four uh, co comprehensive audits uh, in the last 20 years uh, since, uh, at least going back since 2021. Um, so just kind of like an overview or accounting of those recent studies as it relates to kind of ground us within that. So kind of um, maybe starting the, the workshop off with a grounding of that history and that understanding of where we're at based upon the observable and objective data that we've gotten from these studies. Commissioner Carter. I'm curious, um, did anyone know when Chastity Jesus uh, completed the transformation of the information for the 147 recommendations into the proper format requested by the city? We submitted the 2018 responses 2019 we're targeting November perhaps 2019 and 2020 but don't hold me to that that's just some conversations that we're having and we're trying to get through them as you know part of the reason why I think the department requested additional staffing is because of the difficulty in terms of doing all of this and being responsive but since since we've been on board right we inherited a, a, a backlog 2018 has been submitted, 2019 was targeted for uh, November and, and we're gonna continue to get through them. I think we are up to what? 2021 was the, was the back backlogs that we have, 2022. So um, yeah, the goal is to get to it. The, part of the work plan that you put together for this year was to get through that backlog and that was the goal. But unfortunately there still seems to be Sometimes we get bogged down in these conversations rather than getting back to the 20, my, my hope is that we can have 2019 and 2020 recommendations to the, to the commission soon. And the goal is to try to get it done within your, your work plan, within your, your year of your work plan. And we have some of the recommendations that were, were made. Uh, I heard about um, increasing the frequency of the meetings that we're having, we did that. Uh, we, we've agreed to that. It's since the last, since the OPSA audit was done, we've agreed to have the police uh, sworn personnel attend the meetings as you saw here tonight. So we are making some changes as we go forward um, as, as best as we can.
So just just really quickly to clarify, because I think I want to highlight, did I just hear you correctly and say that moving forward, we are going to have PD uh, personnel present at every meeting? Yes. Yes, that is correct. That was that was determined at a what couple council meetings ago. Pardon my interruption. Uh, this is Jacob Redberg with the Office of the City Clerk. Uh, the time is 9.16 uh, p.m. Pursuant to Council Rules Procedure Chapter 8E4, extending a meeting past 9.30 p.m. requires a majority vote of members present. Uh, so I'll be taking a vote to um, extend the time uh, or the meeting past that time. Um, if there is no vote, then I'll be ending the meeting at uh, 9.30. Um, so is there a motion by any member? We should be done by 9.30. <laughs> We're trying to move so we can be done by 9.30. No vote. Okay, but um, I asked that question regarding when the form was finally going to be completed and everything was going to be transferred into the proper format because I don't really see any recommendations being looked at until that form is completed. Because they've been hiding behind that form. So um, now we have the form. Everybody knows the structure, the format. So it, the, uh, yeah, all the recommendations uh, will be put into the proper format, and the city council can read the form and see this is the reason, this is the basis, this is the rationale, this is why we want it. Here's SAC PD's response. Commissioner Carter, my understanding, and correct me if I'm wrong, is not about just transferring everything into the form. It's providing a response to each of the recommendations. So part of the form has SPD re response. That's the work that is being done right now. So it's, it's not just transferring the information. It's basically providing a feedback. Like, is it implemented? When was it implemented and how? That is the, that is the information that we're waiting for for each of the recommendations. So we have a very long way to go. Well, that's why I think part of the reason that it, the priority in terms of trying to get it done, and I think what you're hearing um, Assistant Manager Laura say is that is why it's taking so long. That's why the 2018, they gave it to us. Now we have kind of their SPD's feedback as to what rec each of the recommendation has been implemented. If they haven't, I know that we are going through it. Some of the stuff we, we disagree, but at least now we have their response. And so that is why it's taken so long. Okay, so for clarification, we're getting responses today on 2018 stuff, and we still need responses from 2018 forward. And that is that is what, what the assistant manager is saying, that for 2019 and 2020, they're hoping to get that done, hopefully by sometime in November, and they're, they're working as quickly as they can. But yes, 2018, we got them. We just got them a, a couple of months ago. Okay. Well, I, I'm trying to keep the glass help, half full and not empty, but what you just said just makes matters worse. <laughs> that we've been sitting here all this time. I had no idea we're still waiting on SACPD results, their answer, their response. And they've only gotten to 2018, and we still got all these other years to go, and we in 2023. Got Thank you. Okay. Commissioner Bliss? Yeah, just a direct response on the, uh, regarding the 2018 recommendations. Um, per the ad hoc that we had formed last year, and we were still like going through with the 2018 responses, I believe we 
do have um, uh, our, our responses included within that that um, we're hoping to send to PD here. I think we can send to it by this month. However, our, like, our response to the 2018 recommendations, not obviously I, I, we had talked about it this last November, was that it doesn't preclude responses to the 2019, 2020, 2021 recommendations. Um, the 2022 recommendations, you know, we approved those uh, in March a little later than usual, but like we, like one of the things that I made sure that we were, like we had talked about that we're not wait, like the commission has done its work. None of the recommendations are changing. What we're waiting to see is the, P, like is the police department um, showing either that it um, approves and has implemented what the status of implementation is, um, or if it has rejected those. Um, and to be able to see where in the policy this has been implemented, and then that's when we get our response. Um, so assuming, you know, we can send those like the, our response to the 2018, like their, their response to the 2018 recommendations um, uh, as soon as possible, but we should still be getting the 2019 and 2020 responses by November and then hopefully the 2021 response is not long after. Is that correct? That's what I'm seeing. That's what I'm seeing. So fingers crossed. But yeah, I think like the form, Matt, like the form is agreed upon, made very clear in multiple meetings now that like that is the form that we're going to be using. So as long as the police department has, has that and if they need help transferring some of that, it's, it's not a problem. But I also now, like now that we know too how much staff they have, 22, like 22 positions at least between like, you know, their respective audit teams um, that will ideally be reviewing these policies and providing this response, I would hope that full-time staff like working in this unit can provide those within a reasonable time without volunteers having to supplement that labor. All right, one more, we have Commissioner uh, Wayne Johnson and then we're gonna take a vote. This, this for you, Mario. You know, my question really is that the council has has approved the additional positions for OPSA as well as SPD. Has that recruitment process started? I don't believe the positions have been posted yet because they're working with HR uh, to establish those positions, job descriptions, classifications, those kinds of things. And then after that is done, then they will get posted and you go through a recruitment period. Then you have to go through background checks and all of that. So it, it yeah. could take several months to get those positions onboarded. Oh, I, I understand. It's, it's, it's a 90 to 120 day, yeah. you know, kind of a period, you know, to, to once you get started. But in terms of the job posting itself, you know, you're, you're looking for data analysts and those, those job descriptions exist elsewhere within the city. So it's the same skill sets. You, all, you, only thing you got to change on it is, is the department that they're reporting to, you know? In the range, so so if we can get that moving, I just don't want that to be another delay point unnecessarily. Yeah, and those particular positions, possibly those can move forward more quickly. But you'd probably want your compliance officer to be onboarded first to select their team. Mm -hmm. uh, so there there is a sequence to this thing that has to happen. Okay. okay with that, um, do we have a motion? Great. Um, and with that, Mr. Clerk, can you please call the roll? Thank you, Chair. Commissioner Sample? Yes. Commissioner J. Johnson? Yes. Commissioner Z. Johnson? Yes. Commissioner Bliss? Yes. 
Commissioner Carter Martinez is absent. Commissioner Buenrostro? Yes. Commissioner Griggs? Yes. Commissioner Carter? Yes. Commissioner Marion is absent. Commissioner Salazar? Yes. And Chair uh, Castillo-Krings? Yes. Thank you, the motion passes. Okay, we're going back to item number two, which is the follow-up log. Do I have any, and just a quick reminder, um, the vice chair and I will be working on an updated log to try to kind of pair it more closely with our actual work plan. Um, that is gonna be on the agenda for next, for November. Um, do I have a motion? Or no, this is actually just a file and receive. File and receive, great. Moving on to um, any final comments from Commissioners. Well, no, having none, moving on. Uh, public comments, matters not on the agenda. Did that at the top of the agenda. Oh, we did. Sorry. <laughs> Great. Um, and with that, we are adjourned. Woohoo.